Hi, this is Jack Lawrence, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass music. Hey, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. This is part of two of the Dot Watson 100th birthday special episode. Um, if you haven't downloaded part one, go back and check that out because there's some really cool conversations in there with people like T. Michael Coleman and Jack Lawrence. Um, so do go and check that out. But this is part two, and this is a bit more focused on Doc's influence on other players um, and people who've taken his music further on, people who've listened to it and loved it. Some of them knew Docs and worked with Doc. Um, some are just fans of Doc. But, yeah, it's a really cool selection of people you've got coming up here. First, you're going to hear from Mike Marshall. Then you're going to hear from banjo legend Tony Trishka, uh, Laurie Lewis, Brian Sutton, Bob Minner, Scott Nygaard, Chris Eldridge, Jake Eddy, Sid Griffin, Tim O'Brien, and Ketch Secor from Old Crow Medicine Show. Um, that we're going to kick off. One of the, the common themes of having these conversations has been about seeing Doc at festivals and that being people's introduction to him. And there's no better version of that story than Mike Marshall. So we're going to kick off this episode with a chat with mandolin player Mike Marshall, who saw Doc at a festival when he was young, and it changed the course of his life. Here's Mike Marshall. Yeah, it was the first festival I ever went to. And um, it was in Livonia, Georgia, northern Georgia. They had these festivals that were uh, it was a two-weekend festival. <laughs> Plus, uh, during the week was um, workshops. And when I think back on those days, uh, I realized that I was being thrust into the center of what would become the sort of history of this music uh, in terms of, you know, folks like Ricky Skaggs was in the Stanley Brothers and uh, Marty Stewart was playing with Lester Flatt and J.D. Crow in the New South were there with Jerry and Tony and you know, Country Gentlemen, seldom seen, the Lewis family, just everybody, Mac Wiseman. But seeing Doc and Merle, they were just a duo at that point. I don't think they had T. Michael with them. It was just mind-blowing, you know, to be in the presence of uh, that amount of, I guess you would say, history of American music, really. Uh, mm. He really kind of defined the whole thing to many of us in terms of being so aware of, of uh, where this music came from in a really broad sense, you know, I suppose being blind in those days, that was, uh, you know, to become a musician was definitely an option. And it provided you with, of course, unbelievable ears, but also time. To I, I think of Doc as this researcher, you know, when you think of all the tunes he turned us on to, and then you follow the trail of where those mm. tunes came from, and he turned a whole generation onto all this black music and blues and early country and swing and bluegrass and, and on and on it goes. Just a walking library of of all of that stuff. And so it's, it's just pointed the direction for, for our whole generation, really. Um, you know, the Willow Circle will be a broken record had just come out. And so many of us were discovering him for the first time and to see him live and just the way that he, the way that he communicated with his bandmates, uh, um, you know, not being able to make eye contact in that way that you would as a seeing person, his voice was just so reassuring and so clear, you know, how he could, how he could direct a jam session sitting at the guitar 
and just by talking to the musicians in that way that he did so beautiful let's hear you sam you take one you know or whatever it would be to pass it on to someone those kind of communication skills were just so enormous not to mention his friendly demeanor on stage and how he could um just dissolve any of the differences that uh this the society of bluegrass might have had around race or or uh uh, you know, the hippies were showing up at the festivals at that time. And so you had this little bit of tension between the long haired folks and the, and the real Southerners who were the real keepers of this music. Here was doc who had a foot in each camp and, and just made it okay for everyone, you know, had this way about himself and not, of course, we're not even touching on the musicality and, and the unga- ungodly guitar chops and, precision and sense of time and feel. I mean, we go down that rabbit hole. We're here for hours. (laughs) That's a really interesting point about sort of bringing the different factions together, because that point in the sixties when doc really sort of hit the national consciousness, it it almost was the college kids and the hippies that were driving a lot of that sort of that brought the bluegrass and the folk music and the old time back into people's ears. Yeah, it was one of those moments, um, I think, Deliverance, the movie had just come out. And um, as we know, the same way that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou had that kind of profound effect on a, on the urban centers discovering roots music. Uh, Daryl Anger has this theory that it comes around like the cicadas every seven years. You know, <laughs> America realizes that it has a traditional music and it makes its way up into the mainstream. So that was happening. And then the Will the Circle Be Unbroken explosion of that record sort of launched Doc into the that younger generation of, of urban kids. And he had a great sense. Um, I don't know all the details of who his agents and managers were at that time, but they were helping him, you know, play college campuses. And, you know, the folk boom had already happened. And he was certainly part of that early on. And so he just kind of drove it such a delightful performer and engaging and, and really knew how to work a crowd like that. And so, uh, yeah, to just think about him traveling on the road as much as he did. It's unbelievable. Um, staying in all those hotels, getting on, on and off those planes, and buses. And you might know more than I do, but I had heard that he always stayed in a holiday inn, uh, a certain model of holiday in cause he could, cause he knew the layout of the, how it was designed and he could find his room easily. Yeah. It must make such a difference if you sort of know what you're walking into. Yeah. Yeah. Touring as a blind musician. I mean, can you imagine? I think we all forget that because he had this magical way of making his blindness just disappear for all of us. We would just forget cause we're so engaged in the music, but I know how hard it is to tour and keep yourself healthy and find stuff to eat. And man, you know, I'm sure Merle helped a lot, but he wasn't there for a lot of it. And even when he was there, you know, still had separate rooms and he had to find his way around. And it's, it's phenomenal to think about the strength it took. And what did sort of seeing Doc at that festival sort of do for you personally in terms of your musical journey how did that affect you and where you wanted to go well it was the defining moment for me in my life really being at that festival and seeing all of those musicians of course but doc was you know 
in many ways, center of it. The teacher I had at the time, Jim Hilligus, I believe he turned me on to Doc earlier. He might have even showed me Deep River Blues before we went there. Um, and so to see him live and, and be in that environment, it just sort of pointed the way for me musically. It was, it was no question that this was what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, freak my parents out. You know, you're not going to go to college. Uh, well, ma. <laughs> thinking about this music thing. We had a teenage bluegrass band at the time, the sunshine bluegrass boys. We had, um, the, the banjo players, parents had a, a Winnebago with our name painted on the side and we had the matching polyester double knit suits. So we fit right into that culture, but I was always interested in the, the more, uh, progressive things that, that uh, were happening at the time. And, um, and so doc just, um, you know, just, just sort of pointed the way as as the best way I could say it is like, this is, this is what you'll want to do. This would be a great community to be a part of and uh, to study this music the way doc had, you know, to be able to look back as far as he did and then incorporate that somehow into finding your own voice. Um, that was also a big part of what he represented, and I think for a lot of us, because because he didn't have that high lonesome sound, you know, that so many bluegrass pickers had at the time. That was folks were striving for, and he, you know, and he, like I said earlier, he had such a broad appreciation for all kinds of music, whether it was Sweet George Brown or or a, or a country song or a, you know a blues thing. And then, or a fiddle tune, you know, being able to rip through all these fiddle tunes, uh, redefining how a guitar should could be played, must have must have put a light bulb in in my head that to be a musician is to create something unique, something original, and to push at the boundaries of what people thought the instrument was capable of the generation before. Um, he represented that as a guitarist. Uh, and so I, I more grad, gravitated towards the mandolin, but certainly was thinking in those terms of like, gee, all right, this previous generation has done X with this instrument. Is it possible to do Y and Z? Yeah, and that's great. It's that idea of you are just a collection of all the things you bring together and then what you add to it as a unique sort of artist in whatever way you are, because that's... That's the point, really, isn't it? I would say, uh, but of course, we all have our heroes when we're young, you know, and and so it's a it seems to be a collection of of all of that, you know. I tell people, I tell my mandolin students, well, I learned every Sam Bush solo I could get my hands on, especially the ones on Doc's record, um, Little George Rose, and uh, I don't, I forget the names of all of them, but Sam just took incredible solos on all those records, and. Um, She's my curly-headed baby, I think. And, and so I learned all that stuff in as, in as much detail as I could. But in the end, you know, finding my own voice was the goal. And um, I suppose I remember a conscious moment where I said, well, I'm going to have to play something else besides Sam Bush licks now, starting now. <laughs> and that was the moment probably when uh, my own voice started to appear. First, first kind of agreeing with myself that... Uh, I remember my, 
a lot of interviews with people who played with Miles after John Coltrane or after Wayne Shorter, and they had the same conversations. Miles did not want them playing the stuff that the previous cats had played. So they were kind of forced to go exploring. There must be another way. So you got to find your own voice. And incredible that Doc obviously had that sense in his own self uh, early on, clearly. You know, it's like, what did Shakespeare read? <laughs> yeah, and that, that sort of just that... Um... The, the place that he grew up was rich with music then in, in, an, in an age where we weren't so connected. And so he absorbed what was around him. Well, that's, and, and then added to that, I guess. That's got to have been a big part of it. it was just, you know, the community of, of traditional music in that part of the country is just so fiercely strong and they're just holding it together. And, um, you know, but again, you know, raising a family as a blind man and, and going to all those jam sessions, you know, how did he fit it all in? I loved reading the book, by the way, uh, that the fellow wrote on, on Doc and then learning about his early life, uh, going to all the sessions and hanging out with those musicians. Um, yes, it's interesting to be a, a traditional artist and yet be somebody who pushes at the future of where the music could go. You've got to kind of have one foot reaching back and, and an, and an arm reaching ahead somehow. Uh, and doc represented that. Next up, we've got banjo legend, Tony Trishka, who uh, talks about hearing doc at Newport folk festival in the sixties, which is, I think for a lot of people when doc sort of hit their consciousness. So here comes Tony Trishka. That's the first time I even heard about Doc Watson. I think there was a Folkways record in the Watson family that might have been out before that, but I was unaware of it. Um, and Doc Watson was playing with a group with Fred Price, Clint Howard, and Clarence Ashley. Clarence Ashley, who recorded The Cuckoo back in 1928 or something like that. This wonderful, wonderful banjo player. And um, there's some recordings of them from that festival, and I, I remember that. But mostly I remember Doc performing solo and doing things like Deep River Blues and uh, Doc's guitar, which later became known as Tickling the Strings, and, of course, Black Mountain Rag. Those are the tunes that stuck out for me, and uh, I got his first album. I think his first album might have come out that year. It's just this black and white photo, very plain, beautiful cover, and um, I learned to play those on the guitar as close as I could get to the way he did it anyway. And, uh, it was just kind of his coronation. Okay. Now here's this amazing artist from deep gap, North Carolina, uh, is now out on his own. Uh, even though he was playing with this group, he also did his solo thing as well. And, uh, it was just remarkable. And even though we'd heard, or some people had heard of Don Reno doing, uh, country boy rock and roll in the 50, late fifties, maybe some great, uh, flat picking guitar and, uh, George Shuffler doing also some really nice flat pickings and a lot of, um, cross picking with the Stanley brothers. Uh, unless you were fairly deep into bluegrass, you wouldn't be aware of that. And here's Doc Watson on the stage of the Newport folk festival, uh, where, uh, Bob Dylan was also 
discovered would be too strong a word, but where he really hit it with everyone up on stage singing Blown in the Wind. So it's interesting that they both sort of hit at the same time in a big way like that. And then in 1964, I was at the 64 Newport Folk Festival as well and saw a workshop with Doc and Clarence White, um, perhaps the passing of the baton, something like that. And Clarence was there with the Kentucky Colonels. And uh, for a flat-picking enthusiast, it doesn't get better than that. I also remember, this is an aside, not having to do with Doc, but I remember right after that festival, Clarence White being behind the workshop stage and this banjo player, Roger Sprung, probably the first New Yorker to play bluegrass banjo in Washington Square in the 50s. But And uh, Roger Sprung had a group called the Progressive Bluegrassers, and he was doing things different than bluegrass, including Sousa marches, and he was trying to show Clarence the Stars and Stripes forever. Uh, hmm. John Philip Sousa marched with a thousand chords and was getting frustrated because Clarence wasn't picking up the chords right away. Like, it's Clarence White. He just <laughs> got off the stage with Doc Watson. Give him a break. Jeez. <laughs> so. Cool. That was Tony Trishka. Um, my next guest is singer-songwriter Laurie Lewis, who, again, saw Doc play at a festival initially. Um, but, yeah, she's going to talk about sort of the influence Doc had on her and how, how hearing... Doc was just such a, a special thing for her. So here is singer-songwriter Laurie Lewis. I kind of got bitten by the uh, folk music buzz and bug in the 1960s. I was a teenager, maybe 14, when I decided I wanted to play guitar. And my uh, brother's piano teacher's son <laughs> was, a, is a, was a few years older than me. And I think he was a college student and he was totally into Doc Watson and he would come over and um, he, I think he first played a Doc Watson record for me. And then I just went out and bought them and followed him. And uh, I went down to the Berkeley folk festival, which was a huge event every year and Doc would be there. And I just, I just was totally smitten by his, uh, of course, his, his playing which is beautiful and his singing, which is so natural and uh, almost it's conversational and also the kind of range of material he did, what he would choose to do. I really loved the songs. And uh, then on top of that is just this mastery, instrumental mastery, which is, was so beautiful to watch kind of up close you know these are fairly small audiences <clears throat> and i remember as a kid walking into lundberg's guitar store in berkeley one day and there was this guy with his back to me playing this banjo gold plated banjo <laughs> which i eventually realized was a good old gibson master tone you know probably a pre-war master tone or something uh and i, I was just it sounded so beautiful what he was playing just by himself. And then he got to the end of it and started talking and it was Doc Watson. And I was like less than six feet from him because it was a tiny store. And uh, that just kind of, it thrilled me. And to uh, be influenced by his music and then actually meet him and 
understand what a what a kind uh, I don't know, just a, a good soul he was. Um, he would always tell me when I I, I saw him at the um, at Merlefest a number of years I played there, and he would. Uh, I well, first of all, it was very very scary for me because I'm kind of shy. And uh, to to talk to a blind person, you have to instigate the conversation. You have to say, hey, this is Lori Lewis and I'm here, you know. And that part was like a huge uh, wall to get over for me. But when I finally did, he was just so sweet. And he told me how Rosalie, his wife, just love to watch the home place and they listen to it all the time. And um, later when we, we, Tom Rosam and I sang a song, uh, Teardrops Falling in the Snow, a, a Molly O'Day song. And uh, we were playing it at a festival, a bluegrass festival in Dahlonega, Georgia. And I happened to look back at the back of the stage while we were doing that song and doc was sitting by himself in a chair right behind the wings where the audience couldn't see him, but I could see him. And then there were tears streaming down his face. It was like, uh, a very gratifying for me to be recognized and appreciated by somebody like Doc because he was such a huge influence on me. Yeah, and I've heard like just two or three stories about Doc that people just share as part of this podcast that are really intimate, little quiet moments that just have clearly like touched people and just the joy with which people talk about Doc and like obviously I never met Doc. I'm I'm relatively new to the world of sort of folk and bluegrass music and but just to hear the way people speak about him is like a joyous thing. And it's almost like the music is incredible in its own right, but just the way people speak about the, the man as well. I mean you were talking earlier on about like the breadth of material, but also the just the directness of the way he delivered it. And I think that probably just is the man coming through the music because for most musicians I think it's easy to let something get in between who we are and what we express and if you can get out of the way of that that's sort of the most beautiful thing there is in music sometimes oh absolutely I think I think that's that's true I just heard a podcast um the hidden brain which I, I listen to sometimes and um it was about uh how people are attracted to people who have who approach what they do with purpose, like living a purposeful life. And I really feel like that's the sort of thing with doc was one of the, one of the things. And maybe uh, his, his blindness uh, was an aid in him for him for communicating to an audience because you don't have uh, 
he's not looking anywhere. <laughs> you know, you just are seeing this person like wrapped up in what he's doing. And it's so attractive. It's, it's, uh, and I think, you know, if he were sighted, you'd certainly have the same feeling. But I was, I was thinking about that because I was thinking about Doc. And, uh, uh, yeah, he's, he had that real sense of purpose in, in putting his music across. It, it's, uh, just undeniable. You're just attracted to it. And, and that sort of different versions of people expressing that. And also like everybody, I think I've spoken to has spoken about the range of music and like com coming to it. I hear it all as in my head because it sounds all sounds so much like doc. I hear it as all being like one genre of music, but obviously it's not, it doesn't, but it just all comes through this funnel that makes it of the same place. Yeah. Well, and I wonder uh, about that with doc because apparently from the things I've heard or something he was, he was really into uh, uh, more, you know, dance hall, electric music and uh, the, the powers that be, maybe it was Ralph Rinsler or whoever uh, got him in front of the folk audiences, you know, kind of said, well, you got to, you know, do this traditional stuff. That's what people want to hear. And I wonder if left completely to his own devices and not having to make a living, what he would have um, gravitated towards. And I suppose it would be what he, the range of materials he did later in his life, you know, with his, with his bands and stuff. He, he was all over the place. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Is he started out playing guitar for people to dance to. And mm -hmm. when you're doing that, you know pretty quickly if it's not working. So to yeah. be able to read an audience, either an audience in the room with you or an audience just in general and give them a bit of what they want and yet remain utterly true to what you believe in and want to deliver. It's like that's quite a balancing act. Mm -hmm. It's very um, easy yeah. to give an audience what you think they want and get it wrong. Yes, yes. I would say that's that's true, and I don't think he ever. I don't think he ever did that. I think he always gave the audience what they wanted. And I wonder, with such a strong, like musical personality and so kind of engaging, as you say, whether like he could have taken us anywhere because it's him inviting you to go there. Exactly. You go, yeah. Well, if you know, I believe in what you do. I trust this entirely. So if you're going over there, let's go see what's over there. Yeah, it's like following the Beatles. I mean, you know, through all their peregrinations, you could do the same thing with Doc if he had chosen to to lead you. That wherever he led you, I would have followed. Yeah. Um, Although I have to say that for me, I do. I uh, maybe it's because it was the first stuff I heard, but I love the the old timey traditional stuff. At uh, old time music at Clarence Ashley's, those the, those albums, I just love everything about his playing and singing on those those things and his early uh, albums. You know, where he plays banjo and guitar and solo stuff. Do you think maybe like geography has a part in that because Doc grew up where that music came from and his family? knew 
a couple of the characters in some of those songs they, they were they were of where he was they were sort of living history yeah definitely i mean he was he's a link for sure uh, a link to uh the incredible wonderful music of the appalachians yeah i think sometimes it, it's tricky to separate a person from place it's like some music is just sort of you can't really pin it down anywhere it just is music but docs music feels so much like it is of a time and of a place and yet timeless and placeless at the same time yeah i met a man in i just want to i met a man in uh flagstaff arizona and i cannot remember remember his name right now but he was a a good friend of Doc's and uh, he told me a story about driving. He hadn't seen Doc in a really long time, I think years and just drove out to visit him uh, and drove up to the house and Doc was outside planing he, a, a cellar door wasn't fitting right. And he was taking it, working on it had it up on the uh, sawhorses planing it playing an edge of it. And uh, he drove up and Doc turned around and said his name. He said, well, hello there, so-and-so. I I hear you're still driving that uh, whatever kind of car it was. He says, it's missing on the fourth cylinder. <laughs> it's like not even a break. And uh, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know enough of that story for it to go anywhere, but I love that image it just you know knew who it was his ears were so attuned i have to tell you um one of the saddest things i ever heard was um somebody asked doc uh what he'd noticed you know what changes he'd noticed over his life and he said the birds he said they they don't sing like they used to. There's not as many, and there's they just aren't there anymore like they used to be. And for somebody living out there in the, you know, in the in a rural America, and really noticing that, I mean, I I think wow, my backyard's full of birds, <laughs> you know. But he's really he really heard that change in his lifetime. Some of the people on this episode I've spoken to before and some were new to me and I'd never spoken to Laurie before and that was that was a real treat. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, but next up is somebody who I have spoken to on the podcast before and it is Brian Sutton. Um, and I probably don't need to introduce you to Brian. He is one of the legends of bluegrass of our time. And I had a great chat with Brian about the sort of influence Doc had on him um, as a guitarist, as a musician, and just, you know, in general as a sort of touchstone for him, for how he approaches music. Uh, so here is Brian Sutton. You know, when I think about sort of foundations of my connection to the guitar uh, and kind of, you know, the way those sort of foundational figures in your life, musically or otherwise, tend to kind of just be in your brain all the time, like your parents. You know, the my uh, musical... Uh, foundation again is my biological dad and the experiences that I had with him in, in our musical community but Doc Watson is is 
the next sort of big figure. I've often said that it's my, either my dad and doc or, or dad, my dad and doc Watson are, are kind of the, you know, the, the real true foundations of kind of how I connect with the instrument and how I feel that, you know, knowing, knowing where I come from sort of feeling. And, uh, and you know, even, uh, even before I ever got to know him or see, even see him live, um, you know, there was just this, I don't know if it was a North Carolina thing or just, just knowing that what I heard him present on records felt so familiar. And so, um, you know, so, so much like most of what I was playing on a regular basis around, around home. So, um, you know, again, there was just this immediate kind of connection. It didn't feel like I had to go sort of acclimate to what he was doing. He was, he was, he was sort of speaking our own language or that sort of mountain music language. Uh, and also in a way too, that again, sort of spoke to, you know, a lot of my own experience with music as a kid, just because again, what I noticed about doc personally is his ability to play very traditional things, very simplistically, but also play things that had more either, you know, jazz chords or, or adopt a pop, a pop tune or a swing song or something like that. And that's a lot of what we were doing as well around Asheville when I was a kid. You know, jam sessions would be bluegrass and fiddle tunes, but we'd also play Sweet Georgia Brown and Lady Be Good and hmm. and uh, and stuff like that. And and I was encouraged as a kid guitar player to, to jump in and take solos and learn those chords and things. And again, to have this figure of Doc Watson and, and by extension, you know, Merle and, and Jack Lawrence as well. Um, you know, once I got to start seeing them live, it was just great sort of uh, energy and, and added just motivation for me to continue to kind of grow and learn on the instrument. Uh, and in fact, Doc was the first, you know, as far as like a national figure, music figure that I saw on stage, Doc Watson was the first. He was my first concert. <laughs> and uh, and that was Doc and Merle and T. Michael. And then uh, some few years later, I would see them uh, on occasion at our, uh, this big Fiddler's Convention Festival in Union Grove, North Carolina with, uh, Doc and Jack and Merle and T. Michael and then uh, Doc and Jack and T. Michael and then just and then just Doc and Jack. But uh, but I would record those shows and then go back to the campsite and learn as much as I could from what I just heard. So you know, there's I guess all that to say there was just a lot of years of me growing again from the sort of the nuclear uh, musical concept of Dad and our our community and and Doc just sort of provided all this great like here's where it can go, kid, kind of. Uh, kind of information and, and I was just soaking it up and, and again, playing along to things and learning all the records and things like that. So it was, you know, it's to try to state what it is personally to me beyond just kind of, yeah, I love his playing and love his music. It really, it really, uh, his, his output. And again, the people that surrounded him on stage and on the records really provided me with a sense of a, of a bigger kind of potential community, you know, as I would, you know, start thinking mm -hmm. about professional ideals and things like that you know it's just it can be done it, it's and these guys are doing it and i want to be part of it so that's that when i say again to my deep foundations of of experience with the guitar personally professionally all this stuff you know there is such a connection to uh to doc from such an early age along with these other people that i was you know more physically around as a kid that's a lot <laughs> yeah and i've heard you talk before about sort of doc being the main influence for you in terms of playing fiddle tunes on guitar, sort of providing the blueprint for, for how mm -hmm. you hear those things. Yeah. I mean, at, a lot of times what I've done, because, you know, just for me as a guitar player, there's doc and there's also Norman Blake and Tony Rice and, 
in all these great sort of, you know, the, the, the foundations that a lot of us share. And so what I've done is just sort of like, what, what truly is the essence that I've always found so appealing about any one of these people, but to speak to doc specifically, you know, it's just this clarity. It's a, it's a certain kind of rhythmic bounce in his playing. Uh, but, but certainly kind of like this very clear sort of, uh, water droplet kind of sound and, and, and very decisive too. And even as a singer and, and rhythm player, it's just very, very kind of clear, very musical, uh, not mechanical, certainly, uh, but just, you know, you can hear every word that he ever said, you know, there was never, you know, uh, listening to him sing where you wondered what, what, what the lyric was and, and this kind of very comfortable clarity uh, that I noticed in doc that I try to, uh, feel that, you know, I'm infusing somehow in my own playing. And it feels like a clarity of a kind of clarity of intent as well. It feels like you're hearing something direct from like a wellspring of something really real. Like the music totally. can do all sorts of things, but Doc just Doc's music in all forms I've heard, it feels just so direct and so pure. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in any kind of art form, when you get somebody like that that's that can completely make something their own. And again, they're doing it so naturally. It's not like it's some conscious thought about how can I take these different different sort of elements and, you know, be some sort of musical chemist and, 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 uh, like consciously kind of create something. It was completely natural for him because of his experience and hearing his mother play the banjo and things like that and growing up in a musical community as well. Um, and it was just, you know, again, just a wonderful, uh, kind of organic perfection, if you will, of just him being so, so direct and clear and kind of un, uh, unaffected by, uh, you know, a lot of the things that sort of hold other, other folks back, I would say, I mean, I'm speaking for him now, uh, and I shouldn't do that, but, but, uh, but just at least in the interpretation of it, it feels like that he had a, had a real clear sense of what he wanted to do and, and how he wanted to do it, you know, and how he would portray himself on stage. And, and, um, again, but just felt very natural and honest for him. And I think that's as a lesson to any of us that try to do something similar, I think that's, that's where it is, is, is just, you know, that, that the true honesty and, and not trying to make it something that it's not just to appeal to, to masses. You know, he had <clears throat> probably opportunities back in the early sixties where, you know, in the, in the folk boom to, to maybe, you know, change one thing or another, but it was, that was why it was so good because it was so, so real feeling for everybody because it was truly honest and real. And his shows always felt like, and he would say this, you know, this is just us on the front porch playing. That's truly what it was. And I guess when the sort of folk boom happened, there were groups around that were offering a more polished kind of concert friendly version of some of those songs um, for like a mass audience. And to hear Doc do them after hearing those must have felt like, you know, the cobwebs, cobwebs have been blown away a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you hear a lot of that, you know, the real sort of uh, vanilla uh, homogenized kind of uh, folky sound. And, and then you hear Doc Watson and, and, and yeah, you just sort of, you hear where all that comes from. You, you can have an appreciation for one or the other, but when you hear the source, it's, it's an undeniable kind of experience. We heard Doc talk about, um, talk about the song Tom Dooley and his family actually having a connection to the, sure. you know, his grandmother had a connection to that family. And so it wasn't just a, a story out of a songbook for Doc. It was, and it talks to what you were saying earlier about you felt maybe a connection to Doc because of geography. It felt yeah. like his. Yeah, it's, it's easy for me to romanticize from this side of the pond and decades later, but it mm -hmm. feels like there's a 
there's something there and authenticity. Yeah, truly. Um, there's an interesting book you ought to read sometime called uh, Unprepared to Die. And it's, I think it's actually a British author that that does a great amount of research into all these murder ballads, including Tom Dula. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how much of that comes from like Winston-Salem over to Wilkes County and, and Boone. And, and uh, <laughs> that's Doc's, Doc's territory. Um, but, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, a lot of the sort of American traditional music that obviously came from somewhere, a lot of those tunes were either melodically adapted from some older thing. And, um, but I think, yeah, the geography of just the mountains is something a lot of us have talked about where it's, you know, it was fairly isolated for a lot of years. Um, and I think, you know, by the time Doc was out and about and touring and things like that, you know, he'd already been well influenced by, by folks that had never left that area and their, you know, the whole world view was, you know, a 25 mile radius maybe. And, and it's just interesting to think about how the, you know, music got, had such an opportunity to crystallize and, and, uh, and just, you know, be what it is for, for us today that go back and, and enjoy it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The world's changed a lot in the sort of the hundred years since Doc was born and, uh, you right. gain some things and you lose some things. Sure. You know, well, I, it's interesting. Uh, I always try to have the conversation with folks of, of, you know, what's the right way a fiddle tune should be played. And, <laughs> and I, you know, even, even a hundred years ago, things were still evolving and, and, uh, from where, you know, as far as what the original melody of, of soldier's joy or, or, uh, St. Anne's real or, or, uh, salt Creek or whatever it might've been that doc would have, would have played. And, uh, you know, and again, doc, would still kind of adapt and change certain things and, and kind of make it his own and, and be part of that evolution. I think that's again, to, to his honest kind of uh, clear uh, influence, you know, just like Bill Monroe and, and these, and these people that would kind of come along at a very pivotal point in the 20th century with American music, at least, and, and, you know, record and be, be sort of the, be a source in and of themselves. But, but yet my point here is that, or trying to make a point is that, you know, we're, we're continuing to be kind of in this, uh, uh, you know, con well, yeah, continued evolution of, of this kind of music and, and how it, it's folk music essentially, you know, and people, people evolve and adapt it and change it and, and, you know, figure out ways either through limitations or, or, or one or whatever to, to make it, make it work for them. And, and I think again, Doc just kind of had his natural spot in that evolution before him, during him, and then now after him. How things continue to to evolve, but that's always also the balance of kind of staying true to what feels authentic and like the the legitimate thing, or what is the real melody. And but how can I find, or how can any of us find ourselves in that too, as artists? Yeah, and you you released the record, sort of a tribute record to Doc with David Holt and T. Michael Coleman. It's probably mm -hmm. a decade or so ago now, was it? Um, uh, maybe a little more, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's it feels like Doc uh, has a way of still encouraging people now to carry on what he was doing and sort of to celebrate it and try it. It's, the spirit of Doc seems to be something that continues. That sort of, it's not a fiercely traditional, you can only do it this way approach. You know, the whole traditional plus idea was very open but it's at the same time very down to earth yeah that's and that's a tricky balance and i think that's what makes it appealing for a lot of people because you can sort of find your way in it and i think the folks that that really 
decide to kind of learn and study these records or, or, you know, like the folks that would have moved. There's a lot of folks that I grew up around that actually moved to Western North Carolina to be around more of that sort of source of fiddle music and, uh, you know, kind of immerse themselves in it uh, the way, you know, the Beatles went to India or something like that to kind of really get an experience. Uh, but, um, the tr- yeah, like with the, the, the balance of how much tradition that you're going to define success as, you know, rendering or reproducing versus, okay, here's me influenced by this, and this is going to come through my own personal, uh, uh, you know, filters or, or whatever. And I think, again, for what folk music is, that, that is the balance is, is how you hear that person, but also hear that connection to, uh, you know, whatever the source is. And, and again, Doc had his way to do it. That was just incredibly <laughs> uh, influential and powerful. And, uh, and again, I think that's what he would search for is, is uh, again, not ways to fundamentally change it, but just, make it feel right for him and the folks that he were, that he was playing with. And, and the thing for me that I always notice is just this energy in it. Again, there's this essence of clarity and that we talk about, but just this fun kind of factor too, you know, um, it was enjoyable. Um, there was, you know, I guess the emotional aspect, whether it was again, a sad kind of, or more uh, contemplative kind of moment or just raucous and fun, you know, just that really giving into what the tune could be. You know, I think about, you know, versions of him doing, uh, you know, either Way Downtown or Mama Don't Lao, but then like stuff like Shady Grove or, uh, you know, uh, Your Lone Journey that were just incredibly, you know, just deep and, and, and mellow. And so it could, it could be all these different things. And, and I think the point there is just the, the emotional connection that, that that comes out in the music where it's not just rendering the songs. A lot of times super traditionalists, you know, really want to kind of just toe the line and check all the right boxes. And I think you can do that. And through like finding like a true emotional connection to what that is, you know, it turns into more of your own thing. And I think, again, that's what doc did. And certainly a lesson for me as I continue to try to play songs that he did, you know, like there's, <laughs> there's one, uh, well, in the way downtown there, the third verse is wish I was down at sweet Sally's house. I'll, sw- I'll say sweet Loretta's house. Cause that's my wife's name. So, I mean, just little things to, you know, to big things like that, to just personalize it and make it feel, feel real for each of us. That, that, that is the tricky balance. And I think, um, and I think people can smell it a mile off. It's like some of the more sentimental songs or something a bit more sort of poppy like Tennessee Stud where he's doing the little hoof beats on top of the guitar. That could sure. appear to be really sort of corny, but it's just delivered as a, this is just part <laughs> of what, and like when Billy Strings covers that song now, he does the little yeah. hoof beats on top of the guitar and it could come across as being a bit trite, but it comes across as being perfectly real because he believes it and he means it and he's doing it sincerely. And um, I think, you know, it's that that's the thing that people can smell if it's not there. Yeah, I like to think that, you know, in this era of just extremely produced music and kind of fast food, you know, pop uh, tastes and things like this, um, that there is still some essence of the the greater <laughs> the greater population that can kind of notice the difference between something that's really contrived and something that's not. And, and again, yeah, I agree with you that 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 no matter how potentially sort of showy doc would get with one thing or another, it just felt like, okay, this is what we should do here. This, you know, it had purpose. It had, uh, you know, it helped tell either tell the story 
or connect you somehow emotionally to what was going on. And, and uh, again, I, you know, most of the song, like folks that aren't even flat pickers that, that I sit around and we, you know, we gush about doc on, over one thing or another, you know, it's like songwriters just love the way he interpreted a lyric and things like that. And just, again, there's just so many layers of that sincerity uh, to, to appreciate about him. Cool. Uh, always, always a joy to talk to Brian. Um, following on from a point Brian made about, the singing is another quick bit here from Tony Trishka. Um, we had a chat and he talked a bit about Doc as a singer. So I thought I'd just pop that in here because it feels relevant. So here comes Tony Trishka again. You know, we always think what, what an amazing guitar player he he was, as I off, always did. And then there was some point many years after first hearing him, that I started listening to his singing and I went, wow, he's an amazing singer. His phrasing, the way he phrases, is just incredible. He just sounds, you know, it's so sophisticated. It's, you know, because you can hear his singing. It's just sort of like, I liken it to hearing Bill Monroe's mandolin playing. You listen to it, and it's Bill, and it's great, and it's funky, and it's soulful, and all this. But when you slow it down to half speed, it's he's doing some his No choices are amazing. There's all this really subtle stuff that you miss unless unless you're really listening carefully or slow it down to half speed. And I think the same thing with Doc singing. Oh, it's Doc singing. It's this warm baritone and it's Doc. But when you really listen carefully and listen to how he's phrasing it, it's really special. He was a great singer, I think. And then the only other thing is uh, that there's a very early recording, maybe from 1962, where he's playing electric guitar. I don't know if you've heard any of that. Perhaps you have, yeah. Yeah, I heard that he sort of started as a, an electric player and was sort of convinced to to sort of play more acoustically to to get further on the folk scene, I guess. Yeah, I think Ralph Rinsler might have had something to do with that, as I understand it. Okay, this is great, sound wonderful, but yeah, exactly what you said. Play acoustic guitar and you'll have a whole world open up to you. It's fascinating what, what you were saying about the singing, because I remember, I think... It's on one of the early records, and I can't remember exactly which one, but hearing him sing Talk About Suffering, and it's completely mm-hmm. a cappella. Um, yeah. And I'd heard, you know, Ricky Skaggs sing it with, you know, Tony Rice, and I've heard that song before. But you hear just Doc's voice, and you hear the voice and the sound of a room, and just it's, I think, maybe it goes to your point about um, not noticing how good it is sometimes. It's just because it doesn't sound like he's trying. Oh, we've got no, so no. used to we've got so used to singing that shows you how good it is in the last few decades. People are at pains for you to hear how, what a great singer they are, and this is mm-hmm. just sort of music coming out of somebody. And obviously, it's not effortless, but it just feels so fully formed and complete. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. It's not like he took voice lessons or it just it just flowed out of him like water. Just like it's just a very natural thing for him. Maybe it was easy for him, but that's just. What was easy for him is remarkable. Cool. Next up is another guitarist who's incredibly influenced by Doc. Um, it's Bob Minner, and his sort of day gig is being the guitarist for Tim McGraw. I'm sure a lot of you know. Bob's also an awesome flat picker um, and just a fascinating character. You know, he's um, he recently released a tribute record to Norman Blake called From Sulphur Springs to Rising Fawn that if you don't know, you should go and check out. Um, he's a huge Norman fan, but he's also a huge Doc fan. I had a great chat with Bob about Doc. I think what made Doc interesting too is he grew up in this environment of old time music, um, Clarence Ashley and all these other guys. So he has that root, 
but you know, Doc discovered electricity at a point in his life, and you know, was playing a Les Paul, you know, and, and, and doing the rockabilly thing and doing electric guitar. And I don't know how much accuracy is in this, but I've always heard, you know, was it Ralph Rinsler that, you know, got him to to go, no, I want you to maybe do this, you know, maybe do these old these old tunes. And, you know, in in one way, it's typical of that younger guy who's like, um, you know, you know, no, Dad, I want to play electric guitar. I don't want to play, you know, old time music. I want to play electric. And for some reason, Doc agreed to it, you know. And so I think the thing with Doc is you get a you get this. <clears throat> it's, it's almost like it's a double edged sword with him. If you know the background with his rockability and electric playing, you get this traditional. Uh, music that he always did, but you get it with this edge on his guitar playing that kind of comes from, uh, I would think a big, it's a big import from his time as an electric player, you know, and, and doc plugged in for years, you know, with acoustic guitar, Mm -hmm. which is its own thing. You know, if you play, you know, the, the world that I live in, you know, when I play, like, just acoustic guitar, I approach it one way. But when I'm on the road doing my, my you know, the day gig uh, with McGraw and I'm plugged in, of course, I don't, you know, do any flat picking during the show, but if it's during sound check or something, playing any kind of fiddle tune plugged in on an acoustic, it, it feels different. And I don't know how to explain that. You know, but it it doesn't feel like an acoustic guitar because it's not. It's plugged in. You you know, um, but Doc, for some reason, just gravitated towards that and and really used it to his advantage. You know, using a pickup on his Gallagher's, and you know, I don't know if it was uh, maybe the uh, the immediacy that he that he got from that. It maybe it felt like an electric i don't i don't know it's all speculation but it seems when you got doc watson you got you got traditional music folk music kind of like on steroids when you played guitar because it was this edge that that electric players have more mm-hmm. than just strictly acoustic players so just an observation i had nothing to really base that on other than i find it interesting that you know he didn't have a problem he started with electric and didn't have a problem plugging in for many, many, many years, you know, kind of preferred it. So just a thought. Yeah. And you sort of, there's a, there's a, an interesting parallel there with what Billy Strings is doing now and that he can totally sit and play the acoustic stuff, but he's happy plugging an acoustic guitar in to carry it to a bigger audience and do different things with it. And yeah, if he plays with a plugged in sound that doesn't sound like a straight up acoustic, as soon as he plays a fiddle tune or he plays you a, an old Doc Watson song or whatever, it's totally authentic. It's just his version of totally authentic, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's that's what Doc had. It does make sense. That's exactly what he had. And, and I think, you know, with Billy, man, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better guy to carry the carry the baton, you know, with with that. And the thing that, the connection that's great between Billy and Doc is, 
here's Billy doing what he does, which is uniquely Billy Strings. And then when he does a doc thing, you know, I just wonder how many young guys that are like digging a Billy Strings show and digging his guitar playing. And then Billy starts talking about Doc Watson and them going, I don't, you know, I never heard of Doc Watson. And then they, you know, they look it up, they look up Doc. So Billy is, he's providing an authentic conduit to bring younger players into Doc Watson, you know, and of course, you know, you can extrapolate that to more bluegrass or flatbed guitar as, as their influences grow. But, you know, yeah, Billy's, he's authentic. He's just exactly like Doc in that way. So, uh, you know, and I find that refreshing and I, and frankly, we kind of, if I may be so bold, we've just been kind of needing a guy that can, bridge that gap for us and and bring younger players into not only his music but also you know the more traditional artists like doc um you know same with same with molly tuttle you know she uh, had a big spot on the uh, uh on one of the late night talk shows over here this night show with jimmy fallon and i'm thinking man what a boost for you know, what a boost for the music, to, for national exposure. Yeah, so, yeah, Billy, he's he's vicious. You know, he can play Doc. If you close your eyes, you think it's Doc. He's that good. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, Doc, you know, his body of work, you know, he, uh, another record my dad had gotten early on was Doc Watson, Good Deal in Nashville, which is, Nashville arrangement, Nashville musicians, a session musicians. Uh, there's piano, there's other stuff on there. Um, Doc in this environment of these Nashville musicians, which is, you know, re- quite removed from what you would think Doc Watson has. And I remember that record too. That was kind of my first, uh, I think Buddy Spiker plays fiddle on that. And, um, so it's a little bit more of that polished Nashville landscape, you know, with Doc Watson. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, uh, but the Circle album was really kind of the, the, the big thing. And of course, you know, I think, you know, if you were, if you were Gallagher guitars back in the day and, and, you know, Doc talking to Merle Travis, you know, about, you know, Gallagher guitars and Merle going, man, that thing just rings like a bell. Hmm. You know, you couldn't get any better promotion, you know, <laughs> for a guitar company than Doc Watson and Merle Travis talking on a record that sold untold millions, you know. Yeah, so, and that record yeah. was the thing in its day that brought a whole new bunch of people to the music as well. There's, there's something every few years, isn't there? And that was the thing of its time that did that. And a lot of people would have heard that and gone, who's this Doc Watson then? Yeah, you know, that kind of brought, um, for Doc, it brought him um, a broader recognition that perhaps he wouldn't have had elsewise. You know, it w- maybe he would have been more relegated to the, you know, that niche of just people who like that music. But the Circle album, 
um, really kind of catapulted him into a whole different level. Um, and he didn't change because of that, you know. Uh, it would be interesting to kind of know, you know, why Doc was chosen for that record. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know, you know, I've, I, I've talked to uh, John McCune a little bit about the record. I've talked to Norman about it, you know, with the exception of the, of the, of the dirt band guys, the nitty gritty dirt band, with the exception of them, Norman's the only musician living off that record. Everybody else has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, but Earl, it started out as a, as a, it seems that, that the uh, John and the dirt band were friends with Earl Scruggs, which kind of would have made sense because Earl was in that um, Earl Scruggs review period, uh, redefining himself mm-hmm. uh, with, with his sons. And so, and the dirt band was kind of that, same kind of hippie-esque, you know, thing. So it kind of makes sense that, uh, you know, Earl was kind of, no pun intended, but instrumental in pulling those musicians together. Um, but, you know, I, I have a DVD um, on Earl. It's a, it's footage from the 60s and 70s. Uh, it's a, it's on Earl Scruggs. It's, it's, um, kind of a mini documentary a little bit. And so he's going to Earl's house. He's going to, uh, he's out at a doc's house, um, way before this video, way before, uh, the circle album. So I kind of wonder, you know, they, maybe that's why they just thought maybe he says, I'm just going to bring doc Watson in. He's a good fit for this. Um, but that record really brought in a lot of, a lot of guitar players, you know, um, to, to who Doc Watson was. Um, and again, you know, it's like you listen to the, you listen to that record. Like I said, Black Mountain Rag, Doc's version of it, you know, or Way Downtown. That's definitive versions, you yeah, know. So, yeah, if you're going to play Black Mountain Rag, you have to play it in D, then switch to A. Well, it's just what you do. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. That's like, the way Doc did it. Then to a fiddle player, Rags probably played in the key of F, do you know what I mean? But everybody hears the, that in a different key now because it's, it's sort of a guitar tune more than a fiddle tune to most people now. Yeah, yeah. And Doc, you know, he was really, you know, like I said, so so Clarence had done that 33 fiddle tunes or acoustic guitar tunes on that on that cassette tape in 62 didn't come out until 2008. So really the, the only one that was really bringing fiddle tunes to guitar before that, yeah, it was Doc Watson, you know, before anybody, um, before Dan Crary and, and truth be told, even before Norman Blake, you know, uh, I had asked Norman when you, because Norman, he always put fiddler's dram and whiskey before breakfast together, you know, uh, as a medley. And so I asked Norman, I said, well, you know, did you play those tunes your whole life? Growing, did you listen to them growing up? And he told me, he says, well, no. He says, fiddler's dram. He says, I learned that from Doc Watson. Wow. 
So he got Fiddler's Dram from Doc Watson's version, and he got Whiskey Before Breakfast from Howdy Forrester, who used to play fiddle for uh, for Acuff, because Howdy brought that into Nashville. So, but yeah, to hear to hear Norman Blake go, no, I learned that tune from Doc Watson. That's yeah, pretty pretty tall cotton. So Doc was kind of the He's just kind of the archetype. I think if you had to put it into one person that, you know, if you, well, let me put it to you like this. If you didn't have Doc Watson, you you probably would have, you would certainly have a totally different version of what we call flat pick guitar, you know, if at all. Mm. You know, he seems to be kind of be the guy who really brought it into the forefront um, and of course, with the success of the Circle album, carried it even farther and brought it to a wider audience. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, he, he, and I think you can hear his playing, and you know, anybody that's been playing for 30, 40 years, he's certainly one of the main influences, you know. So, yeah, that was Bob Menner. Um, next up, we've got Scott Nygaard, a great guitarist, um, also the former editor of Acoustic Guitar Magazine. He's got really some really interesting perspectives on Doc as a guitarist and as an influence. Um, yeah, so here comes Scott Nygaard. I mean, the, the Will the Circle Be Unbroken album was, I mean, I think a lot of people my age, that was just a huge, you know, I know like Tim O'Brien, Laurie Lewis have talked about, you know, like what a, what a big influence that was. Um, and at the time, you know, I had sort of been fooling around with the guitar a little bit and that came out. And I, I sort of, I, you know, it's funny because I didn't really understand guitars. You know, I'd be listening to like stuff on the radio or like whatever the Beatles or I listened to the band a lot or whatever, you know, music that was going on. And I didn't really, my parents got me a nylon string guitar when I was like 13 and a classical guitar book. And I was confused. Like, why doesn't this sound like the guitar, you know? And then the person, I think, okay, there's electric guitars and, um, and that. But then when I heard Doc, but I, and then I sort of heard this idea of acoustic guitar, but I didn't understand that there are steel strings and nylon strings, right? And then when I heard Doc, it was just, that's the sound that I want. What is that? You know, um, that's, you know that was just immediately, that's what I want to sound like. Out of all the things that I was listening to, you know, electric guitar players, you know, Hendrix or Clapton or Robbie Robertson or all, all, all the stuff, you know, I heard Doc and, you know, I remember things just maybe one of the first things I learned was um, Tennessee Stud because that was sort of in my, <laughs> at my level at that point, you know, I wasn't going to start playing Black Mountain Rag a little bit, but I could, I could figure out the da 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 you know, that. That kind of thing. And that just became, that's what I want to sound like. Um, and then I got to hear him a couple times in the early seventies, once, once opening, and he was playing with Merle at that time. Um, once opening for the Eagles in this kind of big theater where their, their first record had just come out. Um, and then in a smaller venue, this club McCabe's, um, in Los Angeles and, and yeah, I was just, you know, my eyes were just like, what is he doing on his hand? You know, just like, and I think that's, 
like it's interesting to me now that you know just in part as far as the preponderance of like tab and notation and everything that's just there's so much of that out there but you know i just you know i figured out how to use the flat pick by watching doc you know just watching what he was doing watching what his hand was doing um and and that was just like okay it moves back and forth in sort of this regular regular fashion um and, and that was that was really it i mean i just my I'm, eyes just must have been glued and you know and i find that you know that was that was the case for a lot of things as i was you know, learning music from that point on, you just learned by watching. Um, and so he was just a huge influence and not, you know, not just playing the guitar, not just fiddling, but like the, not, I mean, not just flat picking fiddle tunes and that sort of thing, but just the range of his repertoire was really, it was really interesting to me. And I was, you know, I've always been interested in just all this different kind of music. So he, you know, he would play old time, you know, ballads and fiddle tunes and, you know, raggy stuff and swing stuff and, you know, blues and especially with Merle and, and all that just seemed like, oh, that was natural that you that would learn how to play all of that stuff. You know, in a sense, he wasn't really a bluegrass guitar player. You know? um, and it's, it's sort of funny too, because it went along with, what you would be, you would hear on FM radio in the seventies where you'd, you know, you'd have these FM radio stations. Sometimes like college radio was, was really happening then. And, but also just even commercial radio, you'd have, you know, radio things where you would have like, um, Bob Dylan and then, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and then Doc Watson and then Dan Hicks and his hot licks and, you know, all this. And it was, it was just what was on the radio. And so there was, it sort of fit with what I was hearing from Doc as like, yeah, this is just the thing to do rather than sort of focus on this one, one particular style. And so, you know, his guitar playing had a huge influence on me and that he was just, he was the guy who I first saw do that. And then I think it helped um, soon after I started, there were a couple um, guitar players in the Northwest Seattle area. Um, who played like that, who played really, you know, alternating picking, both great players, um, Peter Langston and Dudley Hill. So it was kind of reinforced by seeing docs like, yeah, okay, these guys are doing the same and, and I could, I could do that. But also just, you know, my, I became interested in doing all these different things. I, you know, when I was first starting to play, I'd play, I played fiddle and bluegrass banjo for a while and, you know, sort of, this this sort of amalgam of American folk music that Doc was playing was was what interested me, not any not a sort of specific style. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? You hear the conversations of you know people talk about sort of the Mount Rushmore of flat picking or bluegrass guitar, and Doc Watson's always in there, and yet, like you say, in many ways, not really a bluegrass guitar player at all. Um, you know, very. It's not like you hear Doc a load of times in that five-piece bluegrass setting with a five-string banjo and a fiddle and a bass. And Doc just took... And I think... this I mean, I sort of knew this coming into these conversations, how vast his repertoire was, but I think it's really sort of hit home talking to people just how... I think because everything Doc did sounded like Doc, 
it's easy to miss just how wide the range of stuff that came in there really was. Yeah, it was, it was, and it didn't, you know, I didn't probably didn't understand that until later. It just seemed to me like American traditional music played <laughs> like, like nobody's business, you know, like this with, with this virtuoso guitar player that just seemed like the kind of stuff there was, um, you know, and you know, I was hearing Norman Blake at the same time, and he was, you know, he was a lot, he was that way as well, you know. Um, in fact, I, you know, I had a conversation with him once, and we were just talking about old-time music as it sort of became um, through more sort of the re- old-time music revival in the, the 70s. And he, we talked about all the music that was sort of thought of as old-time music, to him that included all this other stuff that has then sort of got narrowed down by people into just sort of fiddle tunes, sort of square dance tunes. But there were all these, all this blues and this sort of like cakewalks and ragtime influence and all this other music that sort of disappeared from the, um, what people thought of as traditional or old time music. Um, so I, and you know, I don't know, I don't know why that is, but the the range just sort of if you sort of look at Doc and 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 Norman, you're is really the sort of traditional traditional flat pickers. And and you know, I think the other thing about all those guys, and it's not just from Doc, but when I was when I was learning that stuff, it was you know, there's Doc and Norman and you know, and then Tony soon for me, you know, because this was I was I was really learning this in like 1973. And um, so that was really when Tony kind of came up. I can't remember when that his first album guitar came out, but it was right around then. Um, there's Russ Berenberg. Uh, who am I missing? Dan Crary. Conrad's White. Um, all those guys sound completely different, right? And mm-hmm. so to me, there was no sort of, Okay, if you're going to play this music, this is how you have to play. It's not, um, you know, if someone wants to learn bluegrass banjo, even these days, it's like, what do you learn? You learn how to play like Earl, and then you kind of move off from that, maybe, you know. But then it was sort of like, here's like five or six guys playing this all completely different. Like, so you can learn what they play, but you you don't need to, you don't need to play how they play. You know, you can play what you hear and what you can do and sort of create your own voice because obviously they have. Cool. That's Scott Nygaard. You'll be hearing from Scott again at the end of the episode, um, along with a few other people. Um, but next up is a young, a younger guitarist than some of the people I've spoken to in this episode so far. Um, we're going to talk to a couple of younger players now. And the first one is Chris Eldridge, who's guitarist with Punch Brothers and new band Mighty Poplar. And he talks about sort of coming coming to Doc's music and sort of uh, learning to appreciate it a little bit later in his life, which I think is really interesting. So here comes Chris Eldridge. You know, for me, when I was a kid, something about there was something about Tony that was able to capture me at that stage in my development. It lined up with a lot of things I was already interested in. And Tony is and will always be my greatest hero. So that's nothing's going to change about that. But, but 
it's interesting. It did take me kind of getting a little bit older that, to, to appreciate um, the power inherent in just playing something with so much honesty. You know, Doc, Doc was just, I, I kind of looked at Doc as this beacon um, and Bill actually, but in, in a slightly different way. But I look at them as these beacons uh, within this music of directness, just being, just being yourself, just doing your thing. And Doc, really Doc in particular, I mean, cause Bill, Bill was this giant creative force who kind of invented bluegrass music. And you hear Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys playing bluegrass. And that as a band, as a band leader, he, he really was exerting a lot of an influence. Of course he sounded like an individual, but he kind of had this uh, vision for how the, the music went. Doc's thing to me is a little bit, it's inspiring in different ways because he wasn't ever really a band leader in that same way. Um, although he did amazing things with bands, but I feel like with doc, you can always, he's this, well, you can always go to because the essence of what makes all of that music great is that you have a guy who is so confident or not even it's not even confidence it's it's just like comfort he's got comfort there's comfort in his own skin he's so comfortable just doing music the way he does it playing and singing songs um in the way that he knows how to do them and he he's a person who's tremendously 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 gifted um and and you know, technically, and he he grew up in in the music. You know, he he was blind, so I think the music was kind of a way. You know, something for him to the, that world of sound was something for him to kind of sink into even more. But but I think he I think he just you know played these songs because that's what you did, and there mm-hmm. wasn't really much artifice or pretense about it. It's just he had this standard of excellence. You know, this is how this song, this is how I play this song and I care about music and I love music and I'm going to do it well. And, you know, he had his heroes, his old time heroes, um, Clarence Ashley or, you know, all these guys who he was around and listening to who played this music in this direct, beautiful way. And and so I I feel like doc just took that, that core of, of the old time music and took its deepest, most direct lessons and just rendered music in this way that was just so honest and direct. Um, and, and I don't know, it took me, it took me, it took me getting older before I understood how completely powerful it was to just hear a human being being themselves. Um, you know, I was thinking as you were saying that about taking a while to appreciate sort of, Doc just being so happy in his own skin and maybe, and I don't know you, but I know me and it takes a while sometimes to become comfortable in your own skin. And then you appreciate that in other people and you sort of mm-hmm. settle into this idea that that's your job as a human being is to just be you because nobody else can do it and you can't be anybody else. And that's, I think sometimes that's something that can be incredibly um, attractive in an, any kind of art is somebody just as comfortable doing what they do. I don't think there's anything more compelling than that. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing to see art where somebody has slaved over something and they've, they've built, you know, it's like the pyramids, like 
gosh, the pyramids are just incredible. What, what, a, what an accomplishment, you know, I love things like that too, you know, where people have just had an idea and they've gone for it. And you're just like, wow, the human spirit, unbelievable. Somebody had this crazy idea and just did it. But, but I think, yeah, as I get older, there's nothing, there's nothing actually that moves me more than true sincerity than, than, than just somebody being honest and sincere. Um, it's, it's funny, but, but I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't crave, I don't crave the big accomplishments as I get older. I, I, I crave knowing who people are because everybody, as you get older, you realize just how hard life is and how complicated life is. And you, and you, I think it's for me anyway, I've, I've gained more um, empathy for everybody else. Not that I feel like I was an unempathetic person before, but, but I think as as you, as you go on, you just realize that everybody's moved through this life. um, And it's, it's been a struggle for everybody. And it's just beautiful to see who a person is um, as they've kind of made that journey. And I think maybe that's why, as I've come to appreciate that more, um, you know, I, as I look to someone like, or not someone like, but as I look to Doc Watson, because he, he really is just kind of the ultimate beacon for me in terms of this thing, just being um, unpretentious. He just does it the way he did it, the way he did it. And so honest, the way he sang was so unadorned. Um, but you can't really imagine those songs being sung in a more direct manner than, than the way Doc would sing pretty much any song. It was playful. You know, it's not like, it's not like, um, it's not like he wasn't in there. He was in there a lot, but it wasn't, there's just no artifice to it. You know, you hear him singing some of these silly songs, you know, where I can't think of anything right off the top of my head, but you know, one of these, playful songs, you know, froggy went a courtin' or something like that. And, and you'll hear, hear him kind of make sound effects or whatever. And, and it's just playful and, 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 and joyful. And, um, you know, he wasn't afraid of any of that. It's like, this is how the song goes, you know, and he just presented it as, as it, um, as it was and, and nothing more. And I just love that as I've, as I've gotten older, I've just come to, come to uh, be so moved by that and so inspired by that, that, that just being oneself is um, about as interesting as it can, as it can be. Because like you said, we, you know, each one of us is the only one of us that exists. Um, And, and it's fascinating to actually take the time to learn about people and know who they are. And and with someone like doc, you just, you kind of learn about who he is via how he plays music. I think maybe that's actually it. You actually learn a lot more. There, there's a lot of music you can listen to, and and you can sort of learn about the people. You can you can learn about what they find interesting. You can learn about, um, you know, and through that you might learn about what they want to present. But with Doc, th- there's no sense that he's trying to present anything other than just how the music goes, how how he thinks the music goes, and that's so refreshing. That's so. That's so different. Um, even Tony, who I think was also a beacon of, of um, clarity in a way, 
you know, I think Tony had really thought a lot about how these things should go um, from, from a not detached. I mean, it was, his thing is so honest, but um, there's a, there was more of a presentation aspect, I think. Um, and I could just be romanticizing Doc's thing. I never knew Doc. Um, but, but I, I really get the sense that, that he just had this privilege of playing music and he played it for people. And, um, and we were just lucky to hear, hear this guy, hear this, hear this spirit, um, just coming through in such an honest, direct way. Cool. That was Chris Eldridge. Always, always enjoyed talking to Chris. Um, I could happily talk to Chris about music all night, every night. He's just, I think you find him really interesting and thoughtful and just full of, yeah, just full of interesting insights. Um, next up, another young guitarist, Jake Eddy, up and coming picker that I'm sure a lot of you have seen um, around. He, yeah, Jake, again, it's really interesting talking to him about about Doc and a lot another common theme of these chats is about Doc and the place that Doc is from and how that is part of the music. Um and we touched on that with Jake. But yeah, his um his Jake Eddie, another really, really cool conversation. The way I found Doc Watson was through just through songs and through material more so than through the artist himself. So like one of the first songs I ever heard on guitar or the, one of the first songs I ever probably learned on guitar, I think it's one of the first tunes my mom ever learned to play, uh, was Tom Dooley, kind of in the style of that Doc Watson recording. And I guess that was something my grandpa was really into, because he, he would show us so many of those tunes. I mean, I remember hearing him play, like, uh, you know, Tom Dooley and, like, like Muskrat or, like, Country Blues. It's like, I remember hearing all that stuff growing up before I knew Doc, right? But then when I got into Doc, I was like, oh, these are all the songs my grandpa likes, right? And I could hear so much of his playing in my grandfather. So I think that ended up, that kind of is what gets Doc near to my heart is that I can hear him in all these guys that I knew and loved in my family growing up, you know? Um, and so then like when I got into Doc, listening to his recordings and stuff, I think the thing that, kind of amazed me aside from all that was that he pretty much to me revolutionized the kind of c-shaped playing i mean doc watson has some of the best c-shaped fiddle tune vocabulary ever mm. like ever 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 period and so like you know when you when you listen to doc watson play something like you know, like whiskey before breakfast or, I mean, that that's such a, that's a simple answer, but it's so, so good. I mean, anything, anything that Doc plays that's in that kind of fiddle tune world, it's just great. And I think Doc's fiddle tune approach is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit more in the old time realm. You know, I mean, he comes from, you know, I don't want to say pre-bluegrass, but some of those walk those Watson family recordings are kind of like they're a little more old timey, a little bit more in the hillbilly music thing. And, and so I think the way doc approaches tunes is not, not necessarily from a bluegrass or flat picking kind of perspective. You know, he's thinking about the energy and the approach of old time music and stuff like that. So I think that's, that's something that kind of makes him unique. Yeah. And he certainly came from that tradition of playing music for people to dance to. 
um, you know, right, rather square than, dance, square yeah, dance rather music. than sort of yeah. for concerts. It was it was music for people to get up and move to. Well, that's the thing about a lot of artists of that time, right? They became they became like they were viewed as more sophisticated artists um, later, but that's not necessarily was their goal, right? Music back in the day was more about entertainment and stuff like that before it was about anything artistic necessarily, I think. So, hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, and that's why I think doc has so much raw energy because he grew up like in the way of entertaining as opposed to trying to make a statement creatively or something like that at first. Yeah. And maybe that's why there's that bit of swing and bounce in this playing that everybody loves is because it's easy to tap your foot and dance to something when it's got a little swing in it. Yeah, the energy is incredible, and Doc Watson knows tempos, man. Like, when you hear him playing fiddle tunes, they're always right where they should be, the right in the pocket, you know, and hard driving, and... Yeah, I mean, they're just... Th- there's so much to be said about his time and his feel, you know. And, and that's even just to lay the foundation before even mentioning all the things about his great creative playing. Hmm. But just the approach and the time and the feel and the groove and all that stuff is... It's so perfect, right? And he has cuts of every tune. I mean, Doc has like, been recorded so much, which is great. It's really interesting what you're saying about C-shapes. And there's a certain, like, the, obviously this is massively oversimplification, but there's lots of people when they play in G, you go for those Tony Rice sort of hot licks and stuff. But I think you're right. right. I'd, never, I'd never thought about this before, but when I play in C-shapes or I see other people playing C-shapes, they always sound a bit like Doc Watson. Because it's just so ingrained, it's such a, it's such a familiar thing. It's amazing, right? And he's, I always forget, like, so, so Doc's born in the twenties, I think, you know. Um, yeah, so twenty-three, so, be, be hundred this year. That's right. Oh yeah, that's right. So, you know, so that should kind of just to give you some perspective, like in the forties, right? In nineteen forty-three, he's twenty years old, mm. whereas. You know, so he's like, he's not, he doesn't have the, obviously he's not really listened to Clarence White or anyone like that. He's doing his own thing. He doesn't have any of this, you know, all this stuff that you hear kind of like, um, like you said, just all these, these hot licks and stuff that everyone's playing now. Doc Watson didn't get to hear that stuff, right? He's listening to fiddle players, banjo players. And so Clarence White is born when Doc Watson's like 21 or 22 years old or something like that. And, yeah. and Tony Rice is born in, I think, 51 or something. So, I mean, yeah, obviously there's no, those guys are not influencing Doc like that because he's already established his thing. And at that point, I guess you're also, you've got the radio and you've got records coming in when Doc's a kid, but you're going to, he's going to have heard and learned music from people around him as much as from anywhere else. And well, especially being from Western North Carolina and everything. I mean, he's kind of from old time music Mecca, you know? Hmm. And, and so like, I wonder what doc would have grown up listening to. Um, probably uncle Dave Macon and like some Jimmy Rogers music. And so, I mean, there's different things going on, but it's not, it, you know, it's not bluegrass music yet. That's for sure. Yeah, and that that um, definitely that Jimmy Rogers influence. I've heard Doc talk about you know finger picking in the sort of Carter family style, and then hearing Jimmy Rogers and some of those runs, and thinking, well, you can only do that with a pick, and starting to flat pick a bit more. Yeah. Or as he put, as he as he put it back in the day, they called it a straight pick rather than a flat pick. 
but that yeah. uh, Jimmy Rogers, ref, you know, that influenced certainly on him as a guitar player. Well, and he and Doc sings and plays a lot of those kind of cowboy ballads anyway. So yeah, you can definitely hear uh, the Jimmy Rogers thing, the influence there. I think for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so and a lot of that's probably a cultural thing, too. Like, Jimmy Rogers was just a cool cat. You know, not only musicians dug him. Um, so, but, yeah. Yeah, and there's something sort of really enduring about um, Doc's music because it is sort of timeless, even though it is very rooted to a particular place. And, you know, of a... a something about hearing Doc's records from the 60s is also of that time, but at the same time, it just sounds like it's been around forever. Yeah, man, it's... That's the that's really the, the, the true statement about a lot of great art, right? That it sounds like... It sounds like it's time and place, but it doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound old or out of style or anything like that. And I specifically love this stuff, man, when he's playing with his son. Hmm. That's so near to me because I grew up playing in that kind of a role too. Like I just relate to that whole thing. I love the way it sounds and it's sounds familiar to me. Yeah. Brian Sutton said something really similar sort of about, you know, his two reference points for becoming a guitarist were his dad and Doc Watson. Yeah, man, I hear so much of Doc and, and Brian's playing too sometimes. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I think that Doc Watson was a later influence for me through actually getting to listen to a lot of his material, like or rather listen to his recordings of his the material, but um, I knew a ton of the tunes through my grandfather growing up, and like you know to look back, it was so obvious that he was lifting all that stuff from the Doc records. It's amazing. Cool. That was Jake Eddy. Um, before we sort of finish talking about a couple of the younger players that have been influenced by Doc, I think so. Pretty much every conversation I had for this podcast. Um, pretty much everybody I talked to at some point mentioned Billy Strings and the work that Billy does to sort of promote Doc's music and the way that Billy carries that with him and is carrying it forward and what an astonishing thing that is. I did try to get hold of Billy for this podcast, but as you can imagine, Billy's incredibly busy, um, incredibly busy, and, you know, I didn't manage to talk to Billy. Um, Maybe one day I will, but I think, yeah, just wanted to acknowledge that in there that just... Everybody at some point mentioned Billy, I think, and what an astonishing thing he's doing. Um, and I just wanted to sort of drop that in there, really. Um, next person I'm going to talk to is author, musician, and broadcaster Sid Griffin. And we talk a bit about place and a lot of these conversations about Doc, about where Doc grew up and where he's from and sort of what he like maybe represents as part of that. And Sid's got some really interesting thoughts about that. Um, and just about Doc in general. So, yeah, here comes Sid Griffin. He was just a name growing up uh, in Kentucky, which is my fault because, uh, you know, rock and roll obsessed kid. And now there's a banjo there and there's a acoustic guitar there, electric guitar there. And uh, my taste is, is more widespread. But as a kid, I was mostly rock and roll. So anyway, it was just a name. And now that I think about it, he, he did play uh, on a festival bill at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina, where I was an undergraduate. And, uh, you know, he was terrific. And it was just him and uh, uh, his son. And I don't remember T. Michael Coleman or anybody else being there. I know he was doing the Vanguard stuff at the time. And 
it's been a long time. We're talking like 74, 1975. And it was just so different, the, the fat, full sound that two guys could get playing out of doors. Doc was just the guy. And when I later on read about him and researched him and found out he was just playing lead guitar in a country and western band, and he was just one of several. He wasn't like you know, considered the guy or anything like that. And that when he uh, started going out on his own acoustically, a lot of his drive was because he wanted to make money for his family, which is you know perfectly fine with me. He did not have this, uh, you know, Monroe, Bill Monroe wanted to make money, of course, but Monroe really was uh, cognizant of where he was flying the flag for bluegrass as as a genre, and Doc wanted to just make a good living for his for his for his growing family. And it's just it's an, it's an absolutely amazing story that he found an audience with these. New York beatneck forward slash folkies on the upper coast. Uh, the first was Greenwich Village, of course. And uh, we, you know, Washington, D.C., Baltimore has always had a bluegrass thing, but the Greenwich Village acceptance of it was amazing. Predictable now, but in hindsight, you, you might not have known it. And then it, up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, across the water is a town called Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Doc was the uh, Club 47 guy. Club 47 is where people like Joan Baez broke. And uh, Doc uh, became a huge star at Club 47 and could do instead of one night or two nights, he could do like three nights or whatever and sell it out. And who would have dreamed that a you know a blind guy from North Carolina, who back in North Carolina, was just one of the guys. He was not considered the Segovia or the Eric Clapton of his scene. And who, who would have dreamed that this would happen? It's, it's an amazing story. I mean, I think there's another one on the sidebar. You know who Wayne Henderson is? Mm, yeah. Kind of, kind of like that. I mean, Wayne Henderson's an amazing player, and he w w wanted to be a U.S. postman and get the steady income, and he's, he's retired and got a pension. And I just think, God, what's in the water down there in western North Carolina? It's incredible. And it's funny, that story that you say about seeing Doc playing. I talked to like so many people who've said they, the first memory of seeing Doc at a festival and just being blown away by the sort of directness of it. I spoke to Mike Marshall, and he said he spent a couple of days at a festival when he was a kid and he saw J.D. Crow with Tony Rice and he saw kind of like, and he just reeled off this list of all the names you would want to see at a festival. And he said the one that totally blew him away was Don Watson. Yeah. And it's funny because all these uh, guitar player magazines, guitar magazines, they have the, the list of a hundred greatest guitarists. And they're, they're just, you realize there's hardly, you know, there's not classical players on there. They're incredibly developed right hands and, and guys like Doc, aren't mentioned or if they are they're they're down the list you, you realize how much people were in the mind bag that i was as an undergraduate where it's a lot of it's based on speed you know chromatic shredding and speed and then of course this pounding which is just one of the hallmarks of a lot of rock and roll from heavy metal to, to, to punk just this pounding and you realize how uh you know i mean doc was just there's a vulgarism down south, slicker than owl shit. Well, Doc's playing was slicker than owl shit. I mean, it was just beautiful. There were no gnat notes or clams. And uh, I mean, it was just, it was really something. And to think that it's a bit like Snuffy Jenkins was possibly, we don't ever know, the leading guy in Western North Carolina that, that really developed that. But Scruggs gets the, uh, Earl Scruggs gets the credit. Don Reno was there as well, but Scruggs gets the credit. I mean, uh, you know, uh, 
radio with Marconi, there were other people applying for patents at the same time. Their patent didn't come through, and we give it to Marconi, the credit for radio. It's just, it's just the way it is. And Doc, there was a lot of pickers down there, but I think Doc justifiably gets the credit of taking it out. If you listen to Bill and Charlie Monroe before he had the Bluegrass Boys, Charlie's just playing simple fills. He's kind of doing what Merle does when Doc does his uh, – leads or the other way around when, when, when Merle does his pick it's sort of that just basic and that's great but Doc took it to another level in in Bill's band as you know the, the, the he didn't have a lead guitar player and I've often wondered if he didn't want the competition because you know Doc, Bill Monroe was a dear friend with Doc Watson and he felt the sense of competition that came in when Earl was in the band Earl Scruggs is in the band. And Monroe, we know, felt the sense of competition when Chubby Weiss is in the band and then uh, uh, Kenny Baker. So I'm wondering if, if Monroe thought, do I really want to have a hotshot guitar player as well? Because Monroe was such a brilliant uh, 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 mandolin player. But Monroe's guys are just, you know... And that's all that those guys did till Doc. Doc... He may not have been the first. I don't really know, but he's the one that gets the credit as popularizing it. You know, he he's not the snuffy Jenkins that stayed behind in North Carolina. He's more the Don Reno or the Earl Scruggs that went out to the world and now gets credit for it. I mean, he's the guy. And it, it's just, it was so different. You know, the folkies were just used to that simple Monroe backup kind of thing, the Charlie Monroe backup. Although the, the Lester Flatt played that kind of backup with Earl. Really simple stuff. And no one was used to... Uh, a guy flying like that. And of course, then he gives birth to say Clarence white and Clarence white gives birth musically speaking to Tony rice. And now look at what we've got today. I mean, doc is a uh, foundation stone in the way that Robert Johnson's a foundation stone for, for, for blues music. Yeah. And it's that, um, that combination of the Mabel Carter style rhythm yeah. with the Jimmy Rogers flat picked runs and the Mel Travis finger picked stuff, just put it all together into this sort of package. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a new thing. When I was doing this book, I don't know if I'm interrupting. I don't mean to, uh, some of the people I interviewed were saying his lack of sight may have given him uh Haha, let me have said pun a clear view of wh what to do musically. In other words, we know that uh, people heard uh, Mabel Carter and other people hearing Mabel Carter, they thought it was two guitars and she, she didn't realize her style is based on not really realizing from a mono scratchy 78 or broadcast 16 RPM record that you might have been hearing. She didn't realize what she was hearing, so she's trying to do it all at once. Well, well, Doc's a bit like that. I mean, Doc's uh, shifting from backup to, to, to lead, which is so slick and so smooth. It's not a rock guy who's playing sort of Chuck Berry leads or single note Clapton-esque leads and then goes to chords. It's like chords or lead, chords or lead. Doc's is, is, is an is a amal amalgamation of both of them. It's very slick, very easily done. He doesn't just go to chords and then hit single notes and then go back. And I think part of that is is due to the challenge of of, uh, of not having sight. That maybe his ears were developed to the point where he, uh, he heard and thinks more clearly and imagined things that a sighted guy who, would, if you're picking, I'm looking at your hands. Well, Doc doesn't have that have that advantage, so he's got it. Where can he go? And I'm thinking his being sightless played a, a big part 
and the sounds that he heard. There was a, a great book called something like, oh, and Billy Bragg, of all people, had a copy of it. We were laughing because the American cover and the British cover were so different. It was talking about, you know, bluegrass America's music, but the British cover had the Southwest with a sort of Arizona Mesa-like desert scene, which, of course, is not where bluegrass is from. And he and I were laughing about that. But there's a great story in this book that uh, Doc's outside sitting on a chair, and, and he says, uh, uh, you know, he says, Matt, go get that guitar that's that's under the bed, and we'll pick some. And and the guy goes the, the 40 feet into the house. It's a quiet summer's afternoon. And he pulls a guitar case out of the bed and he clicks open and Doc hears the clicks and says to this guy, no, no, not that one, the Martin. And the guy looks in the case and it is a Gibson. All Doc has heard is the, is the, is the latches coming up from this guy. That's how developed his ear, his ear was. Isn't that amazing? I think that played a great deal in the, in the, in the, uh, the development of his playing and the, maybe the fearlessness or the ability to go through boundaries of his playing. Cause he was a pioneer, no question about it. I think that's, I think that's a really interesting point about um, when people think about like Bill Murray and Doc Watson and that generation of acoustic musicians, that's now become the tradition, but they were all incredibly progressive at their time. Yeah. Like they are obviously very rooted in tradition, but they were pushing where this could go constantly. Yeah, there's there's no question, and I it's a shame because, you know, Monroe, uh, he was working on a new music when he died, and he had this thing about well, would the public want to hear a new sound from me? And it's a shame that some of the folk acoustic, whatever you want to say, players of Americana get in that bag because if you look at Tony Rice, they they do want you to, to shift around. I feel they do want you to expand the envelope, and Monroe and some of that crowd thought, well, I'll be letting down the bluegrasses if I do this new kind of music, and I think. Uh, Oh, I don't know. Who knows? I I wonder if Doc, when he added the muted bass and the muted drums, if he if he wanted to expand his audience, or it was just a musical experiment, or, or what? I guess we'll never know unless you speak to somebody who's very very close to him. Maybe Jack Lawrence might know. He's been at Sore Fingers. He might know. But um, it's obvious that uh, Watson he just didn't see the barriers that a lot of people saw. And it's also interesting that when he did play with Monroe, they went back to Bill and Charlie, right? They Monroe, when he played with Doc Watson, because they were dear friends, I've got video footage just over on the shelf of them playing together. Uh, they didn't do bluegrassy things. They did uh, the Bill and Charlie Monroe routine, if you would. And of course, with all respect to the late Charlie Monroe, who was very good, he was not a patch on, on, on what Doc could do. I mean, they Doc playing with Bill Monroe on the lawn of the White House for Jimmy Carter. You've probably seen that footage. It's on YouTube. It just takes it to a whole nother, another level. It's just insane that those two guys playing, two virtuosos matching each other spot for spot. Incredible. Yeah, and you wonder kind of if Bill had had a bit more of that, if stuff might have gone in a different direction, you know, if he'd spent some it's more time. Yeah, Monroe had this new uh, music towards the end of his life, based with a, had a trombone in it of all instruments, and he didn't have the uh, the chutzpah or the uh, he just felt that it was too much for his audience, and I think that's that was a huge mistake. I mean, without it's it's odd because you know the, the whole thing about the, the Appalachians, Kentucky, the state I'm from, 
is people moved, you know, it was the barrier to the the rest of the country. The United States hugged the East Coast. The Appalachians were a huge barrier. They have these pathetic wagons and mules, and it's different. And when they found the Cumberland Gap, you know, before then, people just came down the Ohio a bit and the Cumberland Gap, and the the Appalachians were populated. And then as uh, ways to move west expanded, we knew other ways to get west, a multiplicity of ways besides floating down the Ohio River and coming in the Cumberland Gap came. All those people, Doc's uh, uh, antecedents, were left and they didn't get a new flow of uh, people. So they, their culture stayed the same for like 200 years. It's it's a very important port, point. In in East London, I just I only know this because I just read this London history book. East London's had waves. The East End has had waves of immigrants come in, waves. Mm-hmm. And they've been Jewish for a while, and then they've been Italian for a while, and do the whatever the influx and the ructions going on in the continent of Europe. They've been they've been French, da da da. They've been whatever. And Appalachia didn't have that. The people, the Scots-Irish that went there in the 1700s and early 1800s, as uh, more ways went of going west, uh, they were bypassed. The Appalachians just stayed the same. And that culture stayed that way, certainly till radio, and 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 really, not even till radio, 10 years after radio, when, when Roosevelt got the Tennessee Valley Authority Act, the TVA Act, and brought electricity to the uh, nonprofit areas of eastern Kentucky, the government socialism, if you will, and people heard the radio. They 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 had no idea what was out there. People still spoke in ye and thou and thusly and 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 verily I say unto you and all this crazy stuff. And and Doc was a uh, son of that kind of uh, culture. And and then TV kind of ruined it. And now you can go to Appalachia. It's more or less like the rest of the country in that there could be a Pizza Hut there. But it's it, Doc grew up at a time when people did, uh, you know, they did those ballads like, um, uh, fair, you know, fair young maid, all in brave young man came right in by, said fair young maid. Well, who sings about fair young maid and stuff now? And the answer is people like Monroe, who does his pretty little maid in the garden, and a lot of people know it as John Riley. I think. But Joe Baez cut it as John Riley. That was just a folk song of the time, you know, like 17 verses, which was all chopped down by Joe Baez and people to make it palatable to modern taste. But songs like that just, they existed. I mean, Soldier's Joy, you could have heard the American and the American Revolutionary Army of George Washington and the British troops. I don't think they'd both call it Soldier's Joy. Maybe they would. They were both playing it on the fiddle. That's uh, 250 years ago. That's amazing around the campfires at night. And Doc would have known that song like that. Appalachia, these crazy things were preserved. And he brought that culture, Doc Watson. When he played the Club 47 in in Cambridge to those Harvard students and Joe Boyd and Bob Newarth and Bob Dylan, and we played in in New York to to, to Phil Oaks and and Tim Harden and Tom Paxton and and, uh, all that crowd in in New York. Uh, A lot of those songs they didn't know. They did not know. And if they did know, them, it's because they helped, you know, part of that 1950s folk scare, as we call it in America, the great 1950s, early 60s folk scare. And he brought songs that, and, and, and an attitude that, that people did not know, were completely unaware of. I mean, it's like 
a voice from the past matched with the pushing forward and a, a, a desire to go into the future. I mean, it's, it's a incredible. Somebody was talking about the great names of American music. You have Louis Armstrong and you have, that are really important, uh, Duke Ellington and you have Aretha Franklin and you have Bill Monroe and I noticed uh, Miles Davis and I noticed Doc Watson's name was on that list. Oh, I know it was. The Smithsonian Institute in Washington was having a, this list of the, the important American dozen you have to be familiar with. And Watson was on it, uh, justifiably so. And one of the weird changes that happened was when, as, as Watson said in some interviews when I was doing my book, is uh, just playing to people that were exclusively listening. Exclusively listening. He'd been playing dances, and then he'd been playing a mixture of dances and fellers over by the wall with a you know whiskey and or a beer or whatever, just listening and enjoying the picking. And now, once he starts going, and Berkeley had a big scene out in the East Bay of San Francisco. Once you and uh, what was the one in L.A. The Ashgrove. Once you start playing the Ashgrove in L.A., where Doc Watson did with Merle, uh, uh, and blew people's minds. That Clarence White in the front row. And he was just a kid then. At first, it was odd because exclusively listening, no dancing, no shuffling the feet, no nothing, and that. But that is where that boom, boom, boom comes down. There's a slightly harder downbeat because people are pushing off of it, literally on the dance floor, and it must have been a heck of a change. But all of a sudden, it's everybody's hanging on every note. That's sort of what the Beatles did, isn't it? That's how they. That's what that the Beatles in Hamburg was for. Really, was them just playing for people to dance to. Yeah, people think they were sitting there watching the Beatles. No, they weren't. They were dancing. And drinking and fighting. And, and fighting. Yeah, I agree. They're fighting. <laughs> but it's, it was a, must have been quite a sea change because at first it was, you know, it was a performance that uh, was the uh, lubricant for romance and for dancing and with some chatting in the background. And it must have been incredibly different to play when even when you speak, it's silent. Cool. That was Sid Griffin. Um, I live in the same city as Sid, and I think we've crossed like the same musical Venn diagrams at all sorts of different points over the, probably the past 10, 15 years, and I've never actually met him, but it was a joy talking to Sid. I really enjoyed that. Um, and next up, I've got Tim O'Brien. Obviously, Tim O'Brien is a legend. Um, and as you'll hear sort of from the intro to this, when I talked to Scott Nygaard, he talked about Tim as being some somebody akin to Doc um, in terms of, sort of the breadth of music he covers. But yeah, this this was, again, somebody I hadn't talked to before. Um, I talked to him for this podcast and had such a fascinating conversation. Um, really interesting. So here is Tim O'Brien. And when it, when I spoke to Scott Nygaard for this a few weeks ago, he said, you should talk to Tim O'Brien because in some ways he's like most naturally following in Doc's footsteps because of the range of music that he plays. And Scott sort of drew a very definite parallel between you as artists because of the range, even though you're sort of considered traditional folk musicians, like the range of music yeah. is interesting. Yeah, well, Doc is definitely considered traditional folk music too, but if you look at his repertoire, it goes all over the place, and he, you know, he, uh, he'd sing uh, Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues, he would sing uh, Rockabilly songs by Elvis, he would sing uh, Summertime, you know, he would sing, uh, you know, that's George Gershwin, so he'd sing all kinds of things, and then Contemporary folk things, you know, gentle on my or not gentle, uh, last thing on my mind, you know, that kind of thing by Tom Paxton. In addition to the stuff that he grew up with, is 
that his father-in-law played the fiddling and uh, ballad singing and stuff from around there in Deep Gap and um, and just country music, you know, just what we heard on the radio. But it's interesting what what Ralph Rinsler did, which he kind of woke him up and said, "Look, you occupy a special position, and you you really could make a difference for everybody here." And um, it's really great that he took up that you know, he took up Ralph's idea. You know, he shows up to the recording session with an electric guitar, and they go, well, you can't use this. And he says, well, this is what I have. What is wrong with this? And he gets this sort of crash course on where he where he is and who he is within the scene, you know, from Ralph. And going to New York, I think, is any kind of good artist. Uh, it's, a, it's an important thing to go there and to have people hear you and see what you do but also for you to see what other people are doing and get a perspective on it. And um, he was a smart enough guy and mature enough before he ever did any of that stuff that he was able to put it all together and uh, slyly opposes this traditional musician and put this stuff forward. It's uh, he did, he did bring traditional music. So uh, right to the front for people because of his delivery and because of his, you know, his technique he wasn't, uh, you know, there are other people that have the great technique like Bill Monroe, but they were a little more strident in the way they presented it, and it was harder to latch onto. Doc was really f- like a fuzzy couch that you could sit on and take this stuff in. Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because there's lots of musicians who are as comfortable in their musical skin as Doc Watson, but to have that and also be open to suggestion and taking a different route does require, like you say, a kind of maturity and a kind of openness. Yeah. He was older than the folkies, uh, that were kind of coming up, you know, and, um, he wasn't that old. Uh, so it was kind of like, I don't know. It was, he was approachable. Um, like it's interesting, you know, people like Earl Scruggs, uh, looked him up because they know obviously of, of his talent. they, you know, Flat and Scruggs recording with him, with him is, was a big thing. That's the first record I had of Doc Watson, the first one I could find. But, uh, you know, my first glimpse of Doc was on a folk music uh, festival broadcast on TV from Berkeley, California. And he was completely solo. They kind of brought him up. Somebody guided him up to his microphone and got him there and sort of set the microphones. And he was off and running with his harmonica rack and flat picking guitar. And it was just like so stunning and so immediate to me. I had heard some bluegrass kind of stuff, but not like lead guitar like that. And um, it just, uh, it made, everything made sense all of a sudden. Was it... um the sort of range of music or the, the delivery, or I mean, it's possible, maybe impossible to pinpoint one thing that really drew you to the music at that point, but there's something to have made such a clear impression on you. Is there anything particular that stood out? Yeah. The guitar was really the thing that drew me in. Uh, Cause I was, uh, was really interested in, in, I was playing a guitar, you know, two, two hours a day anyway. And um, to listen to that stuff and try to learn it was really great. And it was, uh, it was a mountain of technique to jump onto. And, uh, but there was, you know, it was obvious that was a, a, the right avenue for me. It was, uh, I felt like I could approach it. It wasn't forbidding. And 
the other thing about Doc, too, is like when you hear those solo records, uh, you go, oh, that's all you need uh, to pr- put a thing across. A guitar and a voice, you know. And, he, you know, he played harmonica on the rack, and he was one of the better ones to do that. But really, the guitar and the voice, you know, Dylan was that way. You know, you'd hear Dylan, you'd hear Pete Seeger with his one instrument and, and his singing, and it was, you know, come across. But with Doc, it was like a whole band there. It was like a really beautiful thing. The other things were like that were were some of the ragtime guitar players, you know, that are, you could hear. And I got into Reverend Gary Davis and his kind of thing. Um, but I was just kind of, you know, I was kind of new at everything. And I was, it was a big, uh, I was just on the tip of, of several icebergs. <laughs> and uh, Doc was the the one that was the nicest, friendliest iceberg. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's really interesting what you said earlier about um, about the approachability of Doc compared to some of the sort of the other players. Sort of about Bill Monroe being a bit more strident, and you know Doc having something that could appeal to most ears. Because I've, I've heard you say before, um, I think it might have been on the the Grey Fox documentary, Bluegrass Journey, is it called? About yeah. bluegrass, bluegrass being a strong spice, you know, and it is. Yeah. It's, it's not to yeah. everybody's ear, but it's somebody like Doc who can take all the similar source material and, and just put it across in such an approachable way. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true that uh, it's, you know, bluegrass is like your first. If, well, if you listen to Bill Monroe or Stanley Brothers to begin with, it's like really strong whiskey. And you, you the first time you have whiskey, you go, why would anybody drink this? Of course, there's an effect that it gives you after the fact, after drinking it, but then you get into the taste later and the subtleties of it. And that's what that kind of bluegrass is. It's really hard. And some of the blues is that way too. It's kind of just in jazz. It's kind of like, how do you, why would anybody go, go for this? And then you gradually develop a taste for it. But Doc was like, um, his singing especially was really, uh, welcoming, you know, it was really, uh, he had this beautiful sound and, uh, he had a kind of a tenor, but it wasn't like a real high nasal tenor. It was just, um, I don't know. He was, he was into pop music, you know, and he, he probably shaped his sound around that stuff. And he, and maybe, I don't know how much Ralph Rensler had to do with how he shaped any of that stuff, but, I think Ralph reminded reminded him to keep it folksy, but I think he used his just general sensibilities uh, to shape it the way, you know, to present it the way he did. Yeah, and that's sort of one of the things that's come across most from talking to people for this podcast is just the like the things people talk about are the sort of directness of delivery and the range of music, but also that just that thing of being able to take pretty much anything and make it sound like Doc Watson. He was striving to be uh, a regular guy. He didn't want to, he really did not want to dwell on his handicap. And I think that was part of the thing that you really respected him for right off the bat. Here's this guy from the Hills and he plays this whole music, but he's obviously a, a brilliant, you know, musician and artist, a great developed personality and um you know like i say he was a smart guy it's sort of disarming when you first hear it it's like 
I don't know why, but I just loved it. And uh, I've tried to figure it out in the years since, you know, what it was. And that's as close as I can see is it's just the guitar drew me, drew me in. And it was just so easy and comfortable compared to a lot of uh, Roots music. Is that, um, has that sort of been an influence on you in your career? Because you, you know, your repertoire is pretty vast, whether it's Scots, Irish music or bluegrass or country or pop, you know, there's, there's a real range there, but it all, you could put on any Tim O'Brien record and it sounds like Tim O'Brien. Is that something you think Doc maybe had a hand in as well? I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I, the, actually Thelonious Monk has, uh, he, he wrote down some rules for his musicians. And one of them was the guy who sounds the most like himself is the genius. And, uh, you got to get a sense of who you are as an artist to make, to make a headway. You have to have a certain a, a direction or you just spin 360 degrees around in circles and don't go very far. So I don't know, doc, like I say, he had that sense of himself and what his mission was in a way. And uh, I've always tried to find my own sound. Another template that, that works for me stylistically as a songwriter, singer songwriter and multi-instrumentalist is, is John Hartford who always was looking for a new thing. And he was often kind of uh, his mind would wander into different territory, but he always kept his feet in the tradition. And uh, he was a little more extreme than doc, a little more, you know, more uh, fairy dust than doc and more, you know, ethereal or something. He was earthy, but it's kind of just a different thing. But, uh, you know, some people like that, um, Ry Cooter comes to mind. He has a style. He borrows from everything, but it always sounds like Ry Cooter. And that's that's the thing that I want to, you know, strive for as, a, as an artist is to have an identity. You know, that's songwriting is part of that. And um, the, the kind of music you do and what you like to do, it's a product of what you're good at and what, you know, what you're not good at and uh, kind of chipping away at the weak points and emphasizing the strong points too. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that was part of Doc's modus operandi as well. I think that's really interesting because I think when you start playing music, you desperately want to sound like other people that you admire. And yeah. the thing that the, the hardest thing maybe in music is to be completely you. Yeah. And it's, but that's sort of the point of being you is to be you because nobody else can do it, but it's the right. hardest thing to get to. Yeah. Well, you know, nobody is completely original and also nobody is completely traditional. They just can't be. I mean, I can play deep river blues pretty much like, seems like pretty much like doc did on the doc Watson on stage record. That's where I learned it from, but it doesn't sound like him at all. And, uh, I just can't, it just doesn't work. And, um, also I can't leave it behind. You know, it's just, it's there. <laughs> it's, uh, you just get on and play and you are, you are, you, uh, every person has their own thing that they can and will do if they set their mind to it, or if they, you know, you just put your attention on things and it, it finally emerges, but it's a lesson it's hard learn to learn that nobody's completely original and nobody's completely traditional. It's just, you're, we're all on a path of tradition that's going forward. It's just, uh, that's the way it is. 
And it's really, um, I think that point that you made about Doc being pegged as a traditional folk musician, right? Actually, Doc's a pretty progressive musician in many ways. So many yes. of the people that we look back to as being cornerstones of the tradition of bluegrass string band music, like the Bill Monroe's and the Eel Scrub, they were progressive musicians. They weren't just they were doing what come before them. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Monroe's a real radical. Earl Scruggs was a real consummate artist, uh, radical too, with his, he was just, uh, he took something and made it so smooth and so palatable, presented it on a plate to you that you could, you couldn't, uh, refuse. And, uh, yeah, those guys were, um, Bill Monroe's, I think his, his radical music was really exciting to people. And, uh, that the tempo and the, you know, the virtuosity of that, of those players, Scruggs and, and, uh, and, and Monroe himself and, uh, Chubby Wise on the fiddle, you know, that, that, and the rhythm section, everything was pretty dang tidy. It was pretty world class. They had just kind of, they had, the, there was no fat on it and nobody was holding anybody back. And, uh, I think that excitement is one of the things about old time music and, uh, Bluegrass music is kind of a, a hyped up version of folk music as what, what is it? Uh, Alan Lomax called it blue, uh, folk music and overdrive. It's, uh, you know, the fast picking is really kind of, uh, a real, uh, piece of sugar that you can, you can, you want to take a bite of. And, um, uh, so Doc, when he, you know, play that, Brown's very blues, you know, you just uh, play the hell out of the guitar and you just, you go, God, how can anybody play the many notes? And, you know, some run, he'd do that chromatic run where he'd go, da 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 all the way, you know, from C up to C or back, you know, or backwards. And you go, I didn't know there were that many notes between those two notes, you know, but he put them in and they fit just perfectly in time. And uh, it's, uh, it just gives you something to grab onto. Yeah, I talked to um, the guitarist uh, Jake Eddy for this, and he was saying that just when he thinks of Doc Watson, he just thinks of the most perfect playing of bluegrass-style guitar out of C positions. Like anybody who plays in the C position now, he thinks of Doc Watson because everybody's got a bit of Doc's influence in those shapes now. Yeah, yeah, Doc is... Uh, you know, Doc was Doc, and uh, you know, there's in in bluegrass guitar playing. The roots of it, you have George Shuffler and Don Reno, and Doc Watson, and uh, as far as lead playing, you know, and and then the Clarence White comes along, and he kind of morphs it, and Tony Rice is kind of like the next extension of that. And Tony Rice was uh, kind of like, you know, a lot of people complain about fiddling and how it got, it all got homogenized with the Grand Old Opry and Arthur Smith and everybody started playing like Arthur Smith. And it was like, oh, we don't hear the old kind of music anymore. And Tony Rice kind of did that with bluegrass guitar. It's kind of, that's what you hear. But if you unpeel a layer or two of that, Doc's in there too. He's kind of the basis of it. And uh, Shuffler and, and Don Reno are are there too, but Doc was very visible and very audible, you know, in in those sixties uh, and early seventies. That when you know when the Will the Circle Be Unbroken record came out, my friend and I 
uh, we're at a party. It was, uh, I think, a New Year's Eve gathering. And I was probably about 1971 or two. I was probably 18. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I know this guy, Doc. I know who Doc Watson is. And I kind of know who Jimmy Martin and Roy Acuff were and that kind of thing, Mabel Carter. And uh, my friend and I said, yeah, you got to play guitar about 20 years before you can get a tone like that. And that was like, uh, we thought, you know, in a couple more years, we'll be able to get that tone. <laughs> but it just doesn't happen. It's, uh, it's Doc's tone. But that's what you aspire to. That's what I aspire to. That not only the, the stuff that he played, but the tone he got and the just the clarity and the, I don't know, precision of the presentation, you know, is a, a beautiful sound. Yeah, I talked to Brian Sutton for this and he sort of described it as like sort of the clarity of just hearing drops of water, just, you know, these just clear, complete notes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his, his sound was... Uh, you know, I think playing electric uh, has a real role in that precision. When you play an electric, the extraneous noise is much louder. You know, it's just jarring. I know playing with the pickups, uh, my guitars and mandolins and fiddles, really made me aware of that stuff. Getting sort of extraneous trash, kind of trying to leave it out and trying to be precise and... Uh, the trying to think of the articulation of people like Doc Watson was what you'd aspire to. And uh, Doc played, you know, he played square dance tunes on electric guitar. So it was about getting that melody out and make people dance with the melody, which is what fiddle players do with just the melody and they don't need chords and that kind of thing. So he was doing that with a guitar. He's taken in a way it would when he's when he started doing that, it would have been hard to do it and drive a dance with an acoustic guitar. I think, I think nowadays you could do it, but I think when he was doing it, it was uh, having the Les Paul or whatever he was playing was probably really helpful. And uh, but that refines your technique, you know. You, you really you're louder, and you you have to pick and choose what you're going to send out there. You know, if you have a sensibility about it, you you work on it getting the tone and that's really interesting actually because sort of through his career in the certainly later years he would play an acoustic guitar plugged in where a lot of other people would have just used mics um yeah and, and having had that that clarity in there made it very easy for him to do that i guess well what you heard on the record the records was had no pickups and uh that was what you aspired to you know when you played and and what you what you liked about him, so I, the pickup sound was always kind of a compromise. But but Doc was not. That's one of the things. Another thing about him, obviously, he was not a purist. He uh, he was going to plug that guitar in, and it was going to be loud enough for him to hear what he was doing. And there's a thing about that. If you have it loud enough, I think when you play at home and you're and uh, you can hear everything really clearly in a quiet room. It's a lot different than playing on stage or playing in a rehearsal room or, you know, with a, other people around, other musicians going against you or, you know, playing with you. It, it covers up stuff. And that stuff is hard. It's hard to get comfortable. Um, and Doc knew that, you know, if I get loud enough, then I can hear to, you can play with the finesse that he needed, to, that he wanted to play with. Uh, that 
the volume uh, really helps you, you know, from keeps you from overplaying, over, you know, pushing too hard. And, uh, you know, Brian Sutton will talk about tension and playing, you know, and how it's, you know, you, you kind of want to play harder and harder to, when you're playing in a bluegrass band. And it's just gets, you get to where you're, you're holding yourself back. And, uh, to be able to remember that is tough on the stage. So, so just having yourself louder helps a lot. So I, that's why I can say, uh, I think, you know, Doc learned how to play cleanly from playing loud. Cool. I've got one more guest for you. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to finish with something that maybe talks a bit about handing over the baton to another generation, because there's a very definite moment that happened with Doc. And I'm going to let my next guest explain to you what that was. Um, this is Ketch Seacall, frontman, founding member of Old Crow Medicine Show. And the, they their story was, you know, kicked off in part by a chance encounter with Doc, and so I'm going to let Ketch tell you about this. This is Ketch Seacall from Old Crow Medicine Show. When I knew Doc Watson, he would he was 75 when I met him, wow. and so still uh, still a very old man, not 100 like he'd be now. But I'm, I met Doc Watson in, in Boone, North Carolina, when I was about 18 years old. I was playing on the street corner with Old Crow Medicine Show, uh, in front of Boone Drug, which was the place that we later learned Doc loved to get, uh, you know, fried bologna sandwiches and Coca-Cola and whatnot. Well, uh, we were busking there on the on the 5th of July uh, in the year 1999, and um, this lady came up to us. And, you know, a lot of ladies came up to us because mm-hmm. we were pretty good looking, though I don't think we smelled very good. <laughs> Anyhow, um, she said, uh, are you going to be here for a while because my daddy loves this kind of music? And we didn't think anything of it. And we said, well, we don't know. Maybe check back. So thankfully, uh, there must have been some good tipping that day. We stuck around uh, long enough for Nancy Watson to come back with her dad. Uh, she parked a red Jeep Cherokee across the street and, and she started walking her dad, Doc Watson. When he got about halfway across the street, we all could see what was going on. And we were just kind of dumbfounded, but we didn't stop the tune. We kept on playing. And uh, he get, he got closer and closer and then he listened in and kind of drank us in with his big ears. And uh, and then we, we got to talking after after we finished playing the song and he gave us a gig at Merle Fest right on the spot. And then he went in, got that fried bologna sandwich. And, uh, and we went home knowing that we had just gotten the biggest break of our career. What I love about, um, like having heard that story is that the story doesn't stop there. Like I've heard you tell it before that you got your break at Merle Fest, but actually that didn't go as well as you thought it would. And so you had to sort of improvise there. You know, I, I heard you saying that the set wasn't that great. You weren't used to big stages and lots of microphones. So you went, ended up going and busking instead. And then you got another big break from that. Yeah. Once, um, once Doc gave us this big gig, uh, we kind of didn't know what to do with it because we'd never gotten a, a shot like this before. Um, and we got to Merle Fest and just made a kind of, 
unruly mess of our set, you know, feedback. It was a two o'clock set at the traditional dance stage. I think we were pretty hungover. I don't think we did a very good job and it just had very little response. So it's like, Oh, well, there it was. There, there's, that's what doc give you. And that's what you made of it. So it was pretty depressing. And, um, and we were the kind of band that was not to be, you know, um, we weren't going to be denied. So, um, we went ahead and set up our own stage and we just played all day and, um, busked and, uh, that kind of busking ethos kicked in and, and, and we made a big noise and made it on the cover of the, you know, uh, Wilkesboro newspaper and, uh, and really endeared ourselves to the Watson family after that, you know, uh, Got it. Got, we were discovered at, at Merle Fest by, um, Sally Williams from the Grand Ole Opry, who, um, who called us, um, about, uh, you know, three or four weeks later to invite us to Nashville. So, you know, the, the chance encounter with Doc led to a whole lot of other encounters that, um, have really enriched my life, but it all began on King Street and Boone. And so I just want to say thank you, Doc Watson. Uh, and thank you, especially to Rosalie, um, without whom none of this would have been possible. Hmm. It's really cool. And there's something, um, there's something beautiful about that sort of, you know, the old, the old guard giving the new guard a hand up because it's how it works a lot in this music. And I'm talking to John McEwen tonight about recording Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which was a big part of Doc sort of getting a national audience. And the idea that that just keeps, passing on and you know old crow will pass that on to other people and already have i'm sure and the idea that this music just keeps being handed on and handed on and handed on is um is a thing of beauty i think well it's really well handled music and uh, i know that doc um bared a torch that had been passed to him uh by his in-laws by by gaither carlton um by a traditional music scene in northwest north carolina that you know, spurred him on, um, by, um, by, the, and that that, uh, talent was, you know, better focused by Ralph Rinsler and others. Um, but, you know, w one of the things I love most about, about sharing this crossroads and Boone with, um, with Doc is that, uh, is that we were playing in basically the same spot that Doc used to play because Doc mm. was, was a street performer on King Street and Boone too. Uh, when when Doc Watson used to play on on the curb in Boone uh, back in the nineteen fifties, he uh, he had to play right next to the outlet because he needed a place to plug in. Because mm. when Doc when Doc was busking, he was a rock and roller greaser Hellcat. You know, <laughs> he wasn't up there singing Omi Wise. And, uh, I just think that, um, when I, when you think about Doc as a, as a greaser, as a, as a rock and roller, as a country picker, um, and not as a folk singer, I think you get closer to what, what the gift from Doc Watson really is. Um, Doc made a lot of sacrifices and, uh, you know, he, he, he made choices that, that, that really enriched the music scene. Uh, and you could see in his later output, 
that he was not bound by the traditional folk music that he learned up there in Deep Gap. That uh, that music ha- held no boundaries for him. He might play, you know, bluegrass one minute, and then the next he was, you know, singing, um, you know, some uh, some torch ballad, or he might be covering a Ralph McTell song. Uh, whatever it was, you know, Doc was was unbound, and um, and I think that that's. Uh, that that's something that really made made a big difference uh, in my life, being um, exposed to a musician who had one foot so firmly rooted in in the tradition, but the other one reaching so wide and far from it. Yeah, and that's great. I think the um, that sense of sort of rooted and progressive at the same time is such a powerful combination. Um, and you hear it with Old Crow, you hear it with, I don't know, Billy Strings, like an absolute foot in the tradition and then an absolute desire to take that wherever you personally want to take it. And that's that's the best of it for me. Yeah, well, you know, if you learn from the from the legends, then you get to carry a little bit of them with you. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. One thing I've heard you say about Old Crow is um, you've sort of said we want to be the hometown boys in any town. And there's there's something about that connection with people that feels like akin to the thing that people say, I never saw Doc play live, but people say that wherever Doc went, he had this ability to make everybody feel like they were just sat in his living room with him. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's, that's a, um, it's so important if you play traditional music to, um, to offer that, uh, that invitation to people listening to you to uh to step back in 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 time with you i mean it, it kind of um it's a beckoning kind of a ritual anyway just when you get your fiddle out of the case you know you think about you know old grandma pulling her banjo down off the wall um you know that's the opening of the um of of the wardrobe that the kids all sneak into to go enter into the other world. Mm. And, uh, you know, this is a, a magical type of, um, expression, uh, making traditional American folk music because it's parentage is so, um, disastrously rich is it, it's such a, um, a beautiful and broken legacy that, um, you know, that when you see the, when you look the parents in the eye of this music, you're like, it's, it's like, uh, when, uh, Luke Skywalker learns that Darth Vader's his dad. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And I think, and do you think that that sort of, um, the symbolism of that taking the fiddle down, beckoning people in, do you think that's even more important now? Cause obviously, you know, when Doc started playing music and where Doc started playing music, you could buy records, you could listen to the radio, or if you wanted music, you could make it yourself. But music wasn't just there to be summoned at the tap of a finger like it is now. And we're, we're sort of saturated with availability of things now. So do you think that that initial gesture of sort of beckoning people out of the immediate day-to-day life and into another time, do you think that becomes more important as a result? Well, I got into traditional music because of the the very point you're raising that 
um, that the nowadays of those days had a, um, a palpable feeling of, uh, of uh, an abandonment of the traditions. You know, you listen to uh, the um, um, clear channel radio was what was sort of what we blamed it all on in the in the 90s. It's like, oh, the DJs don't get to pick anymore what they play. Um, and uh, and that's just a, a, a long, um, long trail full of stepping stones that bring us to the current era in which. Um, you know, the traditions of music are about as far away from the, um, media in which you listen to it. Um, and, and yet you look at records like Will the Circle Be Unbroken in the way that the Dirt Band, you know, basically, um, took the time to, um, symbolically take the old fiddle down. Mm. You know, that was, um, that was a, an expression that, uh, you know, by doing it, by symbolizing it for a new generation, they ensured that every subsequent generation could build upon that. Uh, you know, that's a groundbreaking record because they, in, in to some extent, did it kind of first. You know, the, the long hairs hadn't yet said, yeah, our heroes are Roy Acuff and Doc Watson and Maybell Carter. Um, you know, those were hard heroes to have in the counterculture uh, until you realize that they weren't. Um, but by, by symbolizing that for the rest of us, it, the job of, of um, you know, carrying the torch is a lot easier. And that's almost it. Um, I'm sort of, this is the point where I should probably sum up what, what these interviews have meant to me. And I so hard to do i've spent two months just having the most fascinating conversations and kind of learning about doc and and i've listened to doc a lot more with a newfound sense of wonder and respect but the thing that has i've come away from these with more than anything is not a bigger love of doc's music or it's just seeing the joy with which this bunch of people talk about doc as a human as a musician as a figure as a just a person who has touched their life in some way and that's a, a really joyous thing um, and at the end of all the interviews I asked people a bunch of questions and we talked about all the things that you've heard in the episodes but at the end I said is there anything else you want to tell me about Doc um, and some of the, my favourite moments came out of those just casual got one more thing to tell me kind of things so I'm going to just finish with a few of those um, just because some of them were lovely and it just a little different perspective and a little intimate moment or just a story about Doc um, and so we're going to lead out first with Brian Sutton You know the only thing I would add that, add that I think is important you know in the the tr well for me like an honest sort of assessment of Doc Watson is that again a lot of us sort of felt this uh, kind of grandfatherly you know pat on the shoulder uh, sort of genteel kind of thing from Doc and, and he was certainly that, but he, you know, as a, as a sincere artist, he is a passionate character and, and, you know, um, he had all those too. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, we want to remember him as this, as this, uh, you know, again, that, that genteel character, but, but he was fiery, you know, and, and could be that way. And that's why those songs have that kind of emotion and, and, 
willingness and, and, and that, you know, that, that clarity and things like that was just, you know, he had it all. So that was Brian Sutton. Um, I've also got one more final story from Scott Nygaard that I, I couldn't leave out. I think this is really cool. So, yeah, I'm going to leave you with one more thought from Scott Nygaard. Early 80s, I was mostly singing, playing um, with my, my then wife, the singer-songwriter Linda Waterfall. And um, Doc was playing a gig in one of the San Juan Islands in um, Washington State. And he was playing with with Merle and our sound man was asked to do sound for, for him and, and go up and you know, take stuff up there. And he couldn't do it, but he suggested that, that Linda and I do sound for doc. Cause we knew this PA, we could go up there, you know, I was like, I was, yes, yes, please. You know? And um, so we went up and, and did sound him and, and, well, and then when the, the promoter discovered that we were going to be doing sound, they said, well, why don't you open for him? So we, so we opened for him, but it was, it was really stressful because, you know, we're like doing sound check and then for Doc and well, first for ourselves and then for ourselves. And then we have to run back and get ready. And then we go up and perform and then we have to run back to the board and, and do sound for Doc. But there was this great moment when we were, um, in the dressing room and, you know, we kind of said hi to doc and, you know, said something about, you know, how much he influenced me or something. And he just, you know, smiled and, you know, didn't say much, but so Linda and I were warming up and we would often sing this traditional song. Um, Oh, Mary, don't you weep? Don't you moan? Just as a sort of vocal warm up, And, you know, we would perform it sometimes too, but, and we were in kind of like, you know, we wanted to leave, Doc was kind of there in the dressing room by himself. We're just kind of leave him alone. So we were over in the opposite corner and we're singing. And all of a sudden we hear this bass voice, mm. you know, just singing along with us. That was, that was, so, so we, we warmed up with Doc singing um, bass to us. And that, that was, that was pretty great. But that, the funny thing about that gig too, is it was on one of these islands in the sound and you take a ferry to get there. So the next morning, and, and, you know, he's there with Merle and we ended up, you know, going to a big party, having a big party with Merle and Doc went back and got some sleep. And then we, we met them along with some other people, a promoter and whatever, um, for breakfast the next morning, there was a place right by the ferry docks. So we're like, well, wait, we'll, uh, we'll have breakfast and then you can get right on the ferry. And so we're there having breakfast and, you know, the ferry comes and we all start walking down to the the ferry with them and people are getting loaded on the ferry saying goodbye, sitting around chatting. And then we notice like doc isn't on the ferry and the ferry starts going, starts leaving and, and Merle is on the ferry and I think their car is on the ferry and doc isn't there. And so, and we see he's kind of, I don't know, we go to the bathroom or was chatting with the waitress at the, the diner or something. And he comes, he's walking down, you know, slowly and he can't see obviously that the ferry is taking off. But, um, we, so we all run down to the, the, as, as the ferry's, you know, leaving, we all run down and we're yelling, we're yelling, Doc Watson, this is, you know, we got to wait for nothing. And the ferry actually stopped, turned around and came back for him. 
And nobody had ever heard of that happening ever. Like you miss the ferry, you miss the ferry. It's not turning around. And I just thought, well, yeah, it, you would come back for Doc Watson. <laughs> cool. Just a couple more of these to go now. Um, this one from Laurie Lewis was just, yeah, a lovely thing, a lovely little moment that maybe hadn't come up in the conversation. And some of these stories are things that people maybe wouldn't have thought to tell otherwise. Um, and it's a lovely little a lovely little bit from Laurie coming now. I did a recording session one time in Nashville that was interrupted by Doc coming in to do it. I mean, he had, he had a little like half hour session in the middle of our session, <laughs> the same place kind of squeezed him in. It was because uh, they were trying to, somebody was trying to do a Levi's commercial and they thought this would be a great Levi's commercial is to have Doc telling this story about, uh, <clears throat> how Rosalie saved all of Merle's Levi's. And um, after Merle died, uh, she took them out of the trunk that they were in and made a quilt out of all the, all the Levi's that she had saved. And uh, just hearing him talk about that was so, was so beautiful. I mean, the, the ad never went anywhere. Never got made or anything, but being just being able to hear him talk so freely and openly about uh, a, a very big event in his life and uh, what's something that must have been pretty painful, but uh, he just talks so lovingly, and then he's in this studio where they have every kind of mic. You know, they've got all these fancy mics in there, and he comes in and he goes, no, just give me a sure SM58. <laughs> I know what it's, it's going to do. I like that. Give me that. Cool. I've got two more things for you. One is uh, just a story. I spoke to Jack Lawrence. I've included the entire interview with Jack um, in episode one, so go and check that out. But he said, at the end, I said, is there anything you want to add? He said, no, not really, just... Well, one story, uh, and this is that one story, and I love it, uh, and I think you will too. You know, I own the the D eighteen Martin D eighteen that Doc used on uh, a bunch of the Vanguard records uh, on stage. Um, oh, Home Again, and the Flat and Scrug Strictly Instrumental. Uh, he gave me that guitar. Uh, that guitar. I don't know, uh, 35 years ago. Um, and the way I got it is kind of, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, at Christmas every year, the weekend before Christmas, Doc and I would, would play at a place in Johnson City, Tennessee uh, called the Down Home. And it was like our Christmas party. You know, uh, there we go over, we'd go over and play two shows, turn the house, do two shows and, uh, did it the week before Christmas for 25 years. Um, and I would go pick up doc, drive across the mountain and we would do the shows and I'd come back usually driving the one eye closed, uh, we would come back and I would stay the night with doc and Rosalie. So 
on those occasions, I would grab a, I'd, I'd go out in the kitchen and grab a cup of coffee and go down into Doc's music room. And uh, I noticed in the corner behind his uh, stereo cabinet uh, this old beat-up guitar. And so I pulled it out, out of the corner, and I recognized it as the guitar I'd grown up listening to on his records. And so I dusted, this bridge was coming off of it, and it had three strings, and there was a half an inch of dust on it. So, uh, you know, I pulled it out, and I dusted it off, and I was plucking on those two or three strings. And uh, then I took a big sniff of the sound hole. I'm a sound hole sniffer from way back. I love the smell of, you know, the interior of acoustic guitars. And so about the time I took that sniff in the sound hole, Doc was standing in the door and he said, what on earth are you doing? And I told him, so, well, there's this, you know, I found this guitar in the corner. You know, I think, I think it can be repaired. I think you can fix this up. There's still some music left in this old thing. So, and he said, well, you know, maybe one of these days I'll give it to you. Well, it didn't happen that time. So this repeats itself for, I don't know, three, four years. You know, get up in the morning, get the coffee, go down and dust it, pluck the strings and sniff the sound hole. And Doc always said, well, one of these days I'll give it to you. So he finally did. He, he finally did one one Christmas, and he said, I just want the Grover Rotomatics <laughs> tuning <laughs> machines that are on there. And uh, I said, well, give me your wrench and screwdriver. I'll take them off right away. So anyway, I got it, uh, I got it home, and it was in worse shape than I imagined once I got a mirror inside. So anyway, it took me a couple of years piddling with it here and there to, you know, uh, doing all the repair work myself. Uh, finally got it back together and we were doing, we were doing the, uh, dear old Southern home and, uh, on praying ground records. We did both of those records in five days worth of sessions. Anyway, I got it back together and I thought this is going to be cool. I can, I'm going to take this guitar this guitar is going to be on a Doc Watson record again, only with me playing it. So anyway, we're setting up in the studio, and I didn't tell Doc I was bringing it. Uh, we're setting up in the studio, and I just laid it in his lap. And as soon as he grabbed the neck, he knew the, he knew the guitar. <laughs> and he strummed it and said, well, man, you were right. There is still some music left in this guitar. I, you know, I can't believe it, it you know that is playable again. And he played on it for about 10 minutes and kept going on about what a good old friend that guitar had been to him and how, you know, how he just still loved the tone of that guitar and everything. And I could tell by the look on his face, he's thinking, I should have fixed that thing. <laughs> I should have fixed that guitar. And so I, he was strumming away and I leaned over and whispered in his ear and said, yeah, maybe one of these days I'll give it to you. <laughs> that was Jack Lawrence. Um, what a great story. Um, and we're going to finish with Tim O'Brien. Just a final thought from Tim. Again, a quiet little reflective moment at the end of our interview, which is a nice little reflective moment to end 
these two episodes. Um, I can't tell you what a joy they've been to put together. And I really hope you've enjoyed them. And I hope you don't mind how long they are because they are fairly epic. Um, but yeah, it's been a joy. Uh, you know, I could have carried on doing this for months, but having today as a hard deadline to release them meant I couldn't, which is definitely a good thing. Um, yeah, here's a final thought from Tim O'Brien. I really hope you've enjoyed these episodes as much as I've enjoyed making them. I don't have much to add except that he was this uh, gracious, modest guy. As as much of a hero as he was, I think he knew that, but he sh- constantly shied away from it. And uh, he knew that he was a significant guy. My My last meeting with him, I actually called him up on the phone and it was... Uh, I had to sort of steal my, get my nerve up to, to sort of kind of invite myself to his house because I was within striking distance. And a number of times I passed by there and he'd been friendly to me and, uh, and things, but he hadn't, I hadn't seen him for a couple of years and he wasn't on the circuit as much. He was not in as good a health. And I called him up and I said, uh, I just want to see how you're doing. And he said, uh, I don't, I don't know who you are. And his his daughter was there. Uh, Nancy said, "Oh, you know him. He's a fi- that fiddle player from Merlefest." And he goes, "Oh, you're that fiddle player from Merlefest." And he, he, we both knew that wasn't enough information. But we talked for a little longer, and he started remembering, and he invited me up there, and he wanted to be a good mentor. Uh, you know, the people that loved his music. He loved playing music. But he knew I was kind of looking up to him, and I just wanted a little, you know, I just wanted a little uh, one-on-one time with him. Never had it, really, except for a few minutes here and there. And uh, we sat, the two of us, no one else was there, for about three hours and played and talked. And uh, I left there thinking he he really, I think he really enjoyed it. He liked being Doc Watson, in spite of his modesty. He knew he was something something important, and he knew he was giving something back there. And that's what he wanted to do, I think. All the young pickers that he befriended, you know, he, he really encouraged them. And I was lucky to be one of them. So that's that's about all i got to say, without going to tears. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I think about him. He's, he's such, such a really important figure uh, in in my world, for sure. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.